And then I'm going to read three door prize winners who will be getting e-gift cards. We have Julia Holman from Tennessee. Woohoo! We have William J. Findley from Florida. Well, look at there. Bill Finley. All right. Woohoo! We have Paul Patchy Jr. from California. Look at there. All right, Paul. Actually, I have four here. So, uh, And then Rex Morris from Tennessee. All right. Well, congratulations, one and all. And Scott, did you want to introduce the next presenter? Yeah, I would love to. Now, if I'm reading this correctly, we're, uh, we're up to the Intuit presentation. Is that correct? Correct. So we've got an Intuit presentation from Ted Drake. Ted, good to see you again. Thank you for joining <laughs> this morning, afternoon, wherever we may be. And uh, I'm going to just turn the floor over to you, Ted, since we, uh, we've gotten to hear from you before. We're excited to hear what you have to share with us now. I did do a presentation Tuesday, and um, I talked about our products. I know right now I'm supposed to be talking about products that we have available as if I was in the trade show. At Intuit, I've been to Randolph Shepard many times. And I understand that some groups, some people within RSVA are using accounting software like QuickBooks, but a lot of people are using spreadsheets. I don't go to Randolph Shepard to sell products because I'm not a salesperson. I'm an accessibility person, so I'm here to learn from you. But I will just talk briefly about a few products, but then I actually was gonna take a tangent. Uh, We have QuickBooks Online. It's an online accounting software. And uh, it allows you to take care of your books and create reports, um, manage your inventory, your sales estimates, things like that. Um, If you have employees, we have QuickBooks Time. That's a time tracking software that your employees can check in and check out. And then that can be tied together with any of your payroll solutions. If you need payroll, we also have QuickBooks Payroll. And QuickBooks Payroll allows you to run your payroll, create your forms, send out your paychecks. Employees are able to log in and they're able to manage their own payroll. And then we have QuickBooks Live, which allows you to have a professional bookkeeper um, basically help you set up your books and make sure that they're current with the latest invoices and receipts and expenses. One of our latest things is we just purchased MailChimp and MailChimp is marketing software. So it allows you to set up your emails. It's a customer relation management software. So you can keep track of all your customers. I would assume that mostly in RSVA, your customers are not going to have really rich uh, records, Um, but maybe your cafes here, you might have a uh, email distribution list for menus and weekly updates. We have a new thing called Accelerate, which is like Zoom software for businesses. It's free, but it allows you to run a meeting, a virtual meeting, um, and then it uses artificial intelligence to understand what you're saying during the meeting. And then it can actually create things like invoices or notes, um, and you can download those afterwards. And finally, I wanted to say that we do have an IRA sponsorship. So as a blind or low vision small business owner, you can call up IRA and say, I need help with this business task. So uh, if you need to check inventory or check to see if the uh, cafe is clean or employees are wearing their gloves or the vending machines, uh, none of them are broken or anything like that, you can actually have Ira help you out with those. But one of the things I wanted to share today, this is uh, artists, uh, you're probably not expecting this. (laughs) I've been working on something at Intuit and it's both internal, but it's also research. And that's about COVID-19, brain fog and inclusive design. And I've given a presentation about this a few times at work. And uh, what we're finding is that there's just a lack of knowledge about long COVID. 
And I think that it might be helpful for you uh, as you relate to customers and as you relate to your employees and possibly even with uh, your, your experiencing it yourself or within your family. We look at it as how can we better build our products so that if someone has long COVID or brain fog or cognitive disabilities, they're able to do things like create an invoice, balance their books, uh, file their taxes. That's where, where I'm coming from is how can I learn more about this so that I can help our products get better? But in the meantime, I wanted to share some information about long COVID. And if you have any questions, you can unmute and I'd be happy to answer as much as I can. So what is long COVID and brain fog? I'm sure everybody here knows what COVID-19 is, but what is long COVID? The World Health Organization has actually come up with a specific diagnosis for this because Initially, it was just a bunch of people saying, you know, I had COVID and I got over it within a few weeks. But, you know, six months later, I'm still not back to where I was. Maybe six months, six weeks, three weeks. I haven't gone back to the same kind of energy level. I'm not able to think clearly. Some people have blurred vision. Some people have uh, anxiety. They still have a loss of smell. What is all this? And so the World Health Organization came up with a, um, a definition. And the definition is that post-COVID-19 condition occurs in individuals with a history of probable or confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection, usually three months from the onset of COVID-19 symptoms and lasts for at least two months and cannot be explained by an alternative diagnosis. And symptoms may also fluctuate or relapse over time. If we dig into this a little bit, one of the things they're saying is a history of probable because not everybody goes to the doctor. Not everybody goes to the hospital and gets that diagnosis of COVID-19. A lot of people stay home. A lot of people have a very subtle, slight case of COVID-19. And so they stay home, they isolate, and they think, okay, well, I just had a bad cold. But then three months later, so they get it in January, in like March or April, all of a sudden they're realizing, you know, I'm still not back. Or maybe it comes back even worse. Maybe they, they recovered from COVID and then three months later, all of a sudden they're starting to get anxious. They're starting to uh, lose the sense of smell again. They're starting to have a hard time concentrating, finishing sentences. They need to write down everything they do. And that's why symptoms may fluctuate because you may get good. You might be feeling really good and then you drop and then you come back and then you drop. And I want to give a little bit of numbers on this. So I don't know how many people are in ACB. I looked, I couldn't find it, but let's just say that there's 10,000 people in ACB. Using the metrics for the United States, 2,200 people in ACB have gotten COVID. And then if you look at that number, which means that 16%, 16 people in this meeting have had long COVID, that's just an estimate. And if I then multiply that by 25%, four people on this call in general have long COVID and or brain fog. So it's, it's, it's a fairly large group that we're talking about. Let's look at some of the risk factors. People with type 2 diabetes, people that have SARS-CoV-2 RNA media, I'm sorry, I don't know how to say that, but basically what it means is that COVID is a pulmonary, it's in your lungs. But if the COVID virus gets into your blood, that means it's escaped the lungs and it's gotten into your bloodstream. When it gets into your bloodstream, then that virus is able to go into places like your joints and your brain. And so what they find is that people that have COVID in the blood are much more likely to have long COVID 
and brain fog because it's escaped the uh, the lungs. Epstein Barr, almost all of us have Epstein Barr virus in our bodies. Most people, it's not active, but what they're finding is that a lot of people with long COVID, they have an active case of Epstein-Barr. So long COVID, the COVID infection actually triggers the Epstein-Barr virus that's in our bodies to come back. Epstein-Barr is mostly known for causing mono. And so you may not have had mono, you may not have experienced mono, but I believe 90 to 95% of us have that virus inside us. There's also some specific autoantibodies. These are where your body is having an immune reaction to itself. And so specific autoantibodies are going to be a common sign for people with long COVID. And finally, uh, low levels of cortisol hormone, which is like Addison's disease, uh, which means that you're just... You, you know, you need to be treated with prednisone or something like that. You need to bring up your, your immunity system. So those are some of the big risk factors. Some of the common symptoms are shortness of breath, long-lasting cough, sore throat and difficulty swallowing, blood clotting, chest pains, heartburn, palpitations, new onset of diabetes and hypertension. One of the people I work with, she said all of a sudden she got diagnosed with diabetes last year. She'd never had diabetes before. Blurred vision. Changes in oral health, diarrhea or bouts of vomiting, extreme fatigue, kidney problems, tinnitus, low-grade fever, uh, headaches, joint pain, muscle weakness, needles, needle pains in arms and legs. You don't have to have all of these. You can have a subset of those. But let's look at brain fog and cognitive disabilities. A lot of problems with smell and taste, uh, including everywhere you go, you smell smoke or you smell garlic or you smell other smells. Uh, even when they're not existing in the environment. Anxiety and panic attacks, PTSD, changes in mood, sometimes accompanied by depression and other mental health problems, inability to concentrate, memory lapse, numbness, tingling, vibrations, uh, sleep difficulties, insomnia. So it's a wide spectrum of symptoms. Those symptoms tend to last long after you have been infected with COVID and recover and you're still experiencing these uh, three months to six months after your recovery. And for some people, it continues past that period. Uh, one of the persons I'm working with at Intuit, she's still having issues with cognitive a year later, um, especially with uh, attention deficit disorder. You know, it's like she, she can't concentrate. So what is it like living with long COVID? I'm going to show a video um, of a person that has brain fog. Um, and she has brain fog, not from COVID. Uh, this video was actually created before COVID, but it's an excellent illustration of what it's like. Brain fog can be one of the most difficult symptoms of chronic illness to explain. When you see me, I look and act fine, when really I'm in a state of constantly feeling hungover. It's like a fog that exists between my brain and the outside world. It makes everything less clear and affects every aspect of my life. I have some days when I am able to think clearly and string sentences together without even really thinking. But other days, just trying to find simple, everyday words is a struggle. On the days that are particularly tough, I usually describe it as trying to think through mud. It's as if I have to concentrate on every word to be able to get it from my memory to mouth without disruption. 
facts and numbers I may have known for years become blurry, and I question everything before I say it. I sometimes find myself feeling completely lost in a familiar space. I may not be able to find the words I want to use to accurately express my feelings. I might start a story and forget in its sentence what my point was. I probably am not able to have a thought, find the words to express it, and actually say the words out loud before the topic has changed and what I was going to say is no longer relevant. It may seem like I'm uninterested in what people around me are discussing, but in reality, I'm doing my best to process what I'm hearing and just keep up. There are texts I might proofread three times before sending because I see a new typo each time I read it. The stress of effectively communicating can be crushing when you know it isn't what you're best at. It is difficult to communicate with friends and loved ones. There are times when I kick myself because I realize what I just said may have come across in a completely different way than I intended. There are nights of worrying and list making as I try to reduce the effects that brain fog can have on my life. Brain fog isn't just having trouble with calculations or not being quite as quick-witted as usual. It affects so many aspects of life in many different ways and has consequences that may reach beyond just a simple forgetful moment. So when someone is having a foggy day, grant a little extra grace and patience. I, I showed that video in a presentation at Intuit, and I got a message back from one of our colleagues that said that that explained her to the T. That's how she lives every day with brain fog. All of us experience brain fog at some point, um, but brain fog is a significant issue. Now, it's not specifically to COVID-19. Brain fog is very common for people that go through uh, chemotherapy, and brain fog is also quite common for women going through menopause, and you have the changes in the hormones. And it's also, um, if I understand, if I remember the name, indropause, which is like menopause for men. So when men go through a certain change of age and uh, hormone changes, they can also get brain fog. There's a lot of instances of it, but we need to be recognizing this. I, I think what might you might see it is uh, maybe someone's coming up to your uh, vending machine. So they're coming up to your cafe and they're just staring at the food and they're just trying to remember what is it that I want? You know, and if everything is screaming choice, 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 it makes it hard for them to figure it out. Sometimes we need to give people focus. So you can imagine that in your vending machine, there's like a uh, uh, one item that's uh, highlighted as this is a healthy food. And it's like, what do I want? Oh, I want something healthy. And there's the choice right there. It's helping them choose and remember what they wanted. Another key thing about long COVID is anxiety and panic attacks and PTSD. One person, this was early in COVID, said, uh, knowing how terrible it makes you feel and not knowing when all of this will end or what will happen to you next is the most terrifying part of this illness. We are the guinea pigs. We are the ones that have to figure it out for everyone else. I've never felt so alone or scared. 30% of people diagnosed with neurological or psychological symptoms, 30% uh, of people with COVID. And many long COVID patients report dismissive attitudes by medical providers, which can make seeking care, uh, whether psychological or physical, even more challenging. 
And keep this in mind also, if you have employees or family members, they may not recognize what's happening. You may not recognize what's happening, but if you're aware of it, then it's easier to say, oh, uh, maybe this is part of your COVID. Maybe you're having anxiety or panic attacks. Uh, I talked to one person who had never had panic attacks until he had COVID. He had a very mild case of COVID. And then for about six months, he was having panic attacks about once a week. Uh, what eventually helped him, he said, was getting back on his bicycle and exercise. And then he said when he got the, uh, when the vaccines became available and he got the vaccine, that actually significantly improved his uh, panic attacks. So let's look at how we can help our customers, our colleagues, and be more inclusive. There's a term called cognitive load, and cognitive load is the amount of working memory or short-term memory someone is using. So if you minimize cognitive load, it makes it more accessible for people with cognitive disabilities. So how do you deal with cognitive load? Have simple signage. Make it easy for someone to know, like, uh, here's what's going to happen if I use this button or uh, here's where I can find vegetables, or here's where I can find the healthy options. Don't make them guess. Uh, if you have a door, they should be able to know how to open the door without thinking about it. Every time you make someone think in order to complete a small task, that's taking away the cognitive load where they could be doing something else. You may know about spoon theory. This is going to help you as you're, you're working with your colleagues and your family. Spoon theory is the concept that most of us assume that we have an infinite number of spoons of energy. We wake up in the morning, we get dressed, we go to work, we do this, all these tasks, and throughout the day, we just keep going and going and going. But people with cognitive pain, illness, and fatigue, they have a limited number of spoons. So it's like go into your kitchen and grab all the spoons in your drawer. Now you have to hold all those spoons. In the morning, it may take you a spoon in order to get out of bed. It may take another spoon to get dressed. It may take you another spoon, you know, to get the computer all set up. Uh, maybe you get to take a nap at 12, so you get a spoon back. But at some point during the day, you're going to run out of spoons. You're going to get to the point where you're just like, I can't work anymore today. I've got to take a break. And when you take a break, you rest. And what you're trying to do is give yourself the self-care so that you can get some energy back. And if someone comes up to you, and you both know about spoon theory, and they tell you that they're out of spoons, then you should say, okay, I will take care of this for you. I understand. Let's simplify your workload for the next week, and let's uh, you only focus on what's really critical. Some of the workplace accommodations, providing it, most of these are for people that work in you know office buildings. Provide a quiet workspace, allow the use of noise cancellation or white noise, provide uninterrupted work time. Provide memory aids such as flowcharts and checklists. Allow the use of apps for concentration, memory, and organization. Allow rest breaks. Restructure the job to remove marginal functions to allow them to focus on essential job duties. So if you have, let's say, someone that's working in your cafe that is struggling with um, brain fog, if they've got, normally they were doing 20 jobs, let's just say we're going to take five of those jobs away, the ones that are anybody can do and let them focus on the 15 that are critical to what they do. But take it one day at a time and try not to be hard on yourself. There's a website that's really good called the Job Accommodations Network. Um, the website is askjan.org. It's uh, part of the U.S. government. It's really, really excellent. If you haven't been to Ask Jan, you should. Yeah, it breaks um, all the different disabilities into types 
And then you can find out what kind of accommodations are great for someone with, you know, a physical disability, a cognitive disability, visual disabilities. And then once you understand what can be used, then it makes a lot easier to then research how to get those. As I said, this was a bit of a diversion, but I figured since I talked about Intuit's products on Tuesday, uh, I would go ahead and take an opportunity to bring up a topic that not everybody knows about. Well, thank you for that, Ted. That was incredibly informative, and it certainly has uh, got me thinking about some things that I've either experienced or know of other people that are struggling with. I have to say, by the way, your background reminds me of Las Vegas. <laughs> I, 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 it's uh, Black History Month, and so the background I'm using is celebrating Black History Month. Oh, beautiful. That's very cool. All right. Well, thank you, Ted. I suppose I should ask, do we have any questions? I, I didn't see anybody with their hand raised. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Ted, for that information. And uh, we, we so appreciate uh, all the stuff that you bring to us. So thank you. And I'm looking forward to seeing everybody next year. Absolutely. All right. Ted, Dan Stipple here, Ted. I'd like to personally thank you uh, for all your wisdom you've shared with us over the years and being such a uh, go-to person for us. Listening to your presentation here, I wish you would have gave that presentation to me 20 years ago. <laughs> Uh, working with my various employees over the years. I can think of a situation with most of my employees I had over the years that I had to learn how to deal with that situation Mm -hmm. that they were struggling with. And it took me a while. If I had your presentation, I could have dealt with it much more efficiently. So thank you. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. One thing about COVID is that it's affecting an enormous amount of people. And when you look at that enormous amount of people and the fact that 25% of them are going to have long COVID situations, what it's doing is it's forcing us to really evaluate how are we supporting people with cognitive, cognitive disabilities and chronic health pain and fatigue. While none of this is new, it's just we're seeing it all at one time. And uh, so, yeah, 30 years ago, you were still dealing with brain fog and chronic fatigue and chronic brain illness. Fog, that brain fog, that that's really the bottom line to what I dealt with pretty much all my working career with mm-hmm. various employees and stuff. I just didn't realize what it was. I just had a, I treated each one individually and where if I had a little better insight into it, to, like what you just gave, I could have dealt with it much more, much more efficiently. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Again, thank you, Ted. That was excellent. So moving on, we'll move right into our next presentation. Uh, next up, we've got uh, Vanda Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. And our next presenter is uh, Shauna Jalhol. Did I totally put you? Yes. There you go, Scott. <laughs> okay, thank you. Well, Shauna, welcome. Welcome, and we're thank glad you. to have you here. And uh, I will let you uh, proceed with your presentation. Excellent. So just to be cognizant of the time, I'll probably talk for about 20 minutes. So allow a few minutes for questions and answers. And that way we can wrap up here and be respectful of the time. I'm so happy to be a part of Randolph Shepard. This is my first convention to attend. So this is really exciting for me. Give you a little bit of background. My name is Shauna Jatho. I'm a clinical nurse educator with Vanda. Um, some of you or many of you may have heard of the condition non-24. NON24. It's a very rare condition that affects mainly individuals who are totally blind, but also those who have some light perception may also develop this very rare condition. So I'm going to give you a little general overview today. You have a good understanding of what this condition is. So the three main symptoms, if you experience difficulty falling asleep at night, difficulty staying asleep at night, or difficulty staying awake during the day, 
You may have non-24 if you have no light perception or limited light perception. So the full condition name is non-24 circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorder. So we've narrowed it to non-24 for short. Easier term to remember and understand. The key word in that disorder is circadian. And that's what I'm going to talk about in this first half. You know, what does circadian mean? Uh, what's going on inside of our body that's causing the symptoms? So that way you can better understand where these symptoms are coming from. And then we'll talk about a few facts and how non-24 is different from other sleep disorders. So the word circadian, it's spelled C-I-R-C-A-D-I-A-N. Circa means approximate or about. And Diaz means day. So the definition, circadian, it's a biological rhythm. Biological means that it's happening inside of our body and it's lasting approximately 24 hours. So circadian rhythm, we all have a circadian rhythm. The timing is different for all of us, but for most of us, it's a little longer than 24 hours. So one of us may have a circadian rhythm timing of 24 hours and three minutes, Another one of us may have 24 hours and 13 minutes, just to give two examples. I'm going to circle back to this so it'll make even more sense here. But the takeaway here is we all have a circadian rhythm. The timing is different for each of us, and it usually lasts a little longer than 24 hours. All of the cells in our body follows a circadian rhythm. So our sleep and wake cycle what we're focused on today is just one type of circadian rhythm. But to name a few so that you get a better understanding of our circadian rhythm function, our appetite is a circadian rhythm. Our appetite, our body gives us cues and signals when it's hungry. Our body temperature is a circadian rhythm. Our body temperature is usually warmer during the day while we're up moving around and active and cooler at night while we're resting or sleeping. Our hair and nail growth is also a circadian rhythm. Hair and nails tend to grow more at night versus during the day. So I give you a few of those examples so that you understand the functioning of our circadian rhythm located in our brain is to give our bodies cues or signals to do something at a particular time. So focused on our sleep and wake circadian rhythm, for most of us, we want to have that routine day and night sleep and wake pattern you know, where we go to sleep at about the same time each night and wake up typically about the same time each morning. When we have a regulated sleep and wake schedule, it allows us to have a better quality of life, physically, mentally, emotionally, socially. So it's very important for most of us to have that routine sleep and wake pattern. How does our body know when it's day and when it's night? Besides having alarm clocks, you know, being able to wake up or a really long day and we're tired, how does our body know when to be awake and when to be asleep? Here's the important point with those of us who are either totally blind or have limited light perception. Our body needs to get, to get a signal from the external environment. Our bodies prefer it through natural sunlight, but we can get this through artificial light through our homes and buildings. So natural sunlight or artificial means this light perception comes in through our eyes to the specialized cells of the retina in the back of the eye. 
And that light then transmits a signal from the back of the eye to our master body clock in the brain. So that's where our circadian rhythm is functioning. So our master body clock is a lay term. Superchiasmatic nucleus is the true medical term. Master body clock, easier term to remember and understand. So it's a clock in our brain that controls the timing of our sleep and wake, our appetite, our body temperature, hair and nail growth, just to name a few. When our bodies are processing this light, then it sends a signal to produce our hormone cortisol, which is our day hormone, help us to stay awake, moving around and active. Opposite of that hormone is melatonin, which many of you are probably familiar with. So melatonin being our night hormone, we want our melatonin hormone to be higher or elevated at night to help us to fall asleep and maintain that sleep. And we want our cortisol level to be low at night. So those two hormones work opposite of each other. If our bodies are not able to produce any or enough light perception, those hormones cannot work efficiently. It confuses our body. And what happens is our body starts running on its own time. So going back to that point there in the beginning that we all have a circadian rhythm and it's reset every 24 hours. If we don't have enough or any light perception, we're not able to erase that extra time, meaning that extra three minutes or that extra 13 minutes and reset us to the 24-hour world that we live in. So if our bodies are not able to do that, we're hanging on to that extra time, that extra three minutes or 13 minutes. Remember, those are just two examples. And our body starts shifting or drifting our sleep and wake schedule every day, every night. And that's what leads to the symptoms of non-24. So that gives you a little understanding of what is circadian rhythm and where these symptoms are coming from. So if we were to talk a little bit more in detail now about the symptoms and some of the facts of non-24. So we all have a circadian rhythm resets every 24 hours, typically. We also have a circadian rhythm cycle. And again, that's different for each of us. For one of us, it may take only about a month to get through a cycle or others, it may take a month and a half or two months to get through a full circadian rhythm cycle. So symptom, the first main symptom is difficulty falling asleep at night. So if you're towards the beginning or near the end of your circadian rhythm cycle, you'll probably fall asleep around your bedtime. But as your body starts shifting and drifting its sleep schedule because of the lack of any or enough light perception, then you may find it more and more difficult to fall asleep. Meaning if it's you're lying in bed and it's taking you an hour or several hours to fall asleep. That could be really frustrating. So that's the first main symptom. The second is difficulty maintaining that sleep. So by the time you fall asleep, you may wake up, you're wide awake. You may be able to go back to sleep an hour, several hours later, or you may be up for the rest of the night. And then before you know it, it's morning and you have to get your day routine going, which again, equally frustrated because now you're up during the day, which leads to the third main symptom where you have difficulty staying awake during the day. This could be where you feel drowsy, but you can still stay awake, 
or you have to take a nap or several naps throughout the day. You may be falling asleep uncontrollably. So the severity there can change depending on where your body is in that cycle. So those are the three main symptoms there. So with the third main symptom during the day, difficulty staying awake. To give you an example of this with our circadian rhythm cycle, let's say uh, your circadian rhythm cycle is last a month. So halfway through it, you're two weeks into your cycle. So you're on the completely opposite end of your cycle. So if it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon, for most of us, we want to be awake, alert, and active 12 o'clock during the day. But our bodies, if it's on the completely opposite schedule, we have not enough or any light perception. So remember, our body is shifting and drifting. So on that completely opposite schedule, our body may be giving us cues and signals that it's midnight, completely opposite time. So not able to perceive enough or any light, our body may be producing a high amount of melatonin in middle of the day and less cortisol. We're opposite of that. If it's three in the morning and our body is shifting and drifting, it can't tell the difference between day and night, not able to perceive that through our eyes. So our body may be producing elevated, a higher amount of cortisol at three in the morning. But in reality, we want to be producing more melatonin so that we could be sleeping. So those hormones get confused because of the lack of any or enough light perception. So that gives you a little bit better idea of the symptoms and where they're coming from. What's causing these symptoms with non-24? Up to 70% of individuals who are totally blind may develop non-24. It's a very high percentage. um, And that's due to the lack of no light perception. It can affect men and women equally at any age. Um, It doesn't matter necessarily about what type of eye condition that you have. It's more so related to how much or how little light perception your body is able to take in through your eyes to get to that master body clock in the brain. Individuals may start to notice sleep struggles around the time that you lose vision. If your vision symptoms worsen, your sleep symptoms may worsen. So because it's such a rare condition, um, we want to make sure that our healthcare providers are educated also. The first step in this is myself as a nurse educator is to increase the awareness, provide this education to each of you so that if it is affecting the quality of your life, and you have chronic sleep struggles, then know that you can have that discussion with your healthcare provider. Not to say that you in particular need to retain all of this information that you heard and relay this to your healthcare provider who may not have heard of non-24. We have specialized account managers, and that's what their role is, is to educate each of our healthcare providers, because more than likely, they're going to have questions on a scientific level. We have support out there for you. Before I get to the last point, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit, because I wanted to explain a little bit of a difference in non-24 and other sleep disorders. Uh, Most of you are probably familiar with insomnia. Insomnia is a very routine sleep disorder where individuals struggle with falling asleep and staying asleep mostly every night. With non-24, it's cyclical in nature. So you can have some days and nights where you have good quality sleep or you're able to stay awake. 
it depends on where your body is in your circadian rhythm cycle. Getting back to that point of shifting and drifting, that's the key indication and the difference. Another sleep disorder with sleep apnea and with insomnia, you can have similar symptoms as non-24, but the root cause is different. So with sleep apnea, that's where you have a lack of oxygen to the brain, like you stop breathing periodically while you're sleeping. With uh, sleep apnea, it's lack of oxygen to the brain. The best way to put it for the difference is non-24 is lack of light to the brain. So that way you understand that non-24 sleep symptoms can mimic other sleep disorders, but the root cause is different. Non-24 is centered and focused mainly on individuals who are totally blind or have limited light perception. It's all focused on being able or not being able to perceive enough light perception to tell us when it's day and when it's night. In closing here, hearing this for the first time, or whether you've heard about it before or you've read about it online, if you would like to learn more, we have health educators and they work with you one-on-one over the phone to provide as much support as you desire. We have information in Braille, large print, audio that we can mail to you. Do some research on your own. The health educators are there to answer any other questions that you have. Or if you want to discuss it with your doctor, how to form some conversation with your doctor around your chronic sleep struggles. If you would like to get set up with a health educator, I know we have quite a few of you on the call So I'm not quite sure with Artis and Scott, you may be able to help me to navigate this. I know that my contact number is listed on the program. So um, that is a way to reach out to me personally. And we can just have a quick one-on-one call to gather a little bit more information for our health educators. I will post it in the chat also. I'll also say my number here if you're able to uh, jot that down. It's 202 538 0396. It is in the exhibitor list in your program. So, exhibitor list in the program. Okay. Right. I did notice so, that. Excellent. So I'm listed yep. under Vanda non 24 at Shauna Jatho and it's 202 538 0396. So if you are struggling with chronic sleep and have vision impairment, or someone you may know. If you have an affiliated support group where it's a, a smaller group setting where you feel it would be beneficial to have me um, do an educational presentation, please reach out to me. That's my role. That's my passion here is to increase awareness on a condition that is so rare. If we struggle with chronic sleep, it affects all realms of our life. Um, so I appreciate this opportunity to be a part of my first Randolph Shepherd convention. Um, was really excited to participate and thank you all for having me and for participating. Um, I think we have a few, a few minutes. So if anyone has any questions or comments or if you know you'd like to get set up with a health educator and you feel comfortable just sharing your name and number, um, I'm more than happy to call you, you know, at a separate time. Um, so we can handle it a few different ways virtually here. You do have some hands up. Area code 615, ending in 429. Hi, Shauna. It's Kevin from Tennessee. I have Hi, a Kevin. Uh, comment. Hi. One thing I noticed that because I have low vision, I have only light perception in just my left eye and 3% vision in my right eye. One thing I noticed that uh, about 15 years ago, I was approached because I had 
sleeping problems, and they asked me kind of an off-the-wall question. They said, what kind of caffeine intake do you consume? And I told them at the time, and they informed me, which I just double-checked this to make sure, but caffeine stays active in your body for up to six hours. The reason I'm saying this is, is being in this program, blind vendors are more susceptible to being around sugary products and caffeinated products. And, you know, you get thirsty at night, you grab that little extra Coke. It's got that little extra boost of caffeine mm-hmm. in it. And sometimes that there can be confused with other things because I noticed that when I cut out my caffeine intake after two o'clock, my circadian rhythm started to get on a regular cycle. It's not where it's supposed to be because of my low vision, but it was still on a better cycle than what it was. So I just wanted to kind of make that comment as far as um, be aware of like your caffeine intake and things like that that are going to kind of confuse those symptoms. Absolutely does. It's a, a valid point to share with your fellow members here. There's many many different causes of sleep impairment, right? I mean, it Mm -hmm. could be from, like you say, caffeine intake um, or things that we wouldn't think would have caffeine in it or thinking that, well, if I don't have caffeine, you know, a few hours before I'll be okay or a stressful event, you know, medications may cause sleep impairment. There's Mm -hmm. so many different indications that can cause erratic sleep. Um, so this, of course, is focused and centered on the light perception. So that's another reason why it's important to have that conversation and go through a full assessment if you have chronic sleep. Mm-hmm. This may be with your primary care. It may be happen to have a sleep specialist. Um, some individuals see their psychiatrist or even their eye specialist. Um, it just depends on which doctor that you have that best rapport with to discuss with them a condition that is so rare that they may not have heard of. But um, very good point to share with your group. Thank you. Kevin? You know, it's kind of strange. I just saw you all's commercial, non-24 on TV yes. uh, the other day. And I said, wow, I was telling a friend about this. One of the, one of the things that he want, he asked, do I know if there's a cure about this? But due to I was you know, being blind, he wanted to know, was there a cure? Have I ever experienced it? And I said, well, earlier in my years, I probably have. But I do not know if there's a cure called, really, that was the first time I ever heard about it. I'm just wanting to know, is there a cure? Yeah, uh, very good. Very good question. So with non-24, it's a chronic condition. So there's no cure for it at this time. But there are, I should say, ways to manage it. And through our health educator, you can learn ways to manage non-24. We keep it um, completely separate talk because in this component here on educating about non-24 itself versus treatment options, because that's more of a question and conversation for your healthcare provider, not for, you know, for us to decide. Uh But again, that is also a valid question, you know, that if I do struggle with this disorder, well, then what do I do about it? What are my options? Um, So our health educators one-on-one can send you literature and work with you on that and also with educating um, your healthcare provider. So there's treatment for it, but there's not a cure. So do you all offer uh, something like therapy? Yeah. So in for legality reasons that we can't discuss, you know, any forms of treatment um, where it's completely separate talk, but 
Kevin, if you do want to learn more, then you can definitely reach out to me personally so that I can get you set up with a health educator. Can I call this number that you just gave out, this 2025? Yeah. Okay. Yes. And, you know, I don't see the option where I can put it on the chat board, but I am in the program. And then it's my number 202-538-0396. So that's my cell number. Give me a call and then we can talk further. Sure, I will. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Okay, Brian Whitney, you may unmute. Thank you. Uh, Sean, I wanted to ask you, uh, you had mentioned that it is rare in many healthcare providers, sleep specialists, neurologists, which I do have one for sleep apnea, don't recognize it or are unaware of it. Is there a, is it a medical or is it a clinical diagnosis? Is there a way to measure the cortisol? Yes. So uh, you're um, actually more so with measuring your melatonin level through urine to determine um, when is your body excreting that your melatonin. Um, so if you're producing, you know, excreting, I should say, a high amount of melatonin in middle of the day, that may be an indicator right there. Um, so there's also, you know, sleep studies. There's different ways of how it can be diagnosed, but a lot mm-hmm. of it may be subjective. You know, having that conversation with your healthcare provider, looking for a pattern of erratic sleep. And, you know, not just tracking your sleep for even a few weeks, you know, it should be really for a few months so that you can at least get through one full cycle to determine the erraticness of the sleep. Right. I identify with a lot of that because it's mine is not chronic. It's more acute. It's probably uh, five or six times per month where I cannot go back to sleep. But I was wondering about that. Yes. So five or six times a month, and it's just been recent? No, um, it actually coincided with the loss of the rest of my light perception about a year ago. And last summer, I had to have my eyes removed. I have prosthetics now, so I get no light perception at all. Right. So that's something to think about where is if it happens five or six, you know, nights a week, is that affecting the quality of your life or is it something that, you know, you're able to deal with and accept? That's where everyone's different as far as, you know, if they're wanting to, you know, explore this further with their healthcare provider or not. Great information. I really appreciate them. I'm discussing with specialists. Sure. And jot down my number. So if they have any questions, then you can reach back out to me and, um, our account managers go in and talk to them. Okay, so we can point the provider to you or do we call you to point at the provider? Call me and then I'll initiate everything on my end. Okay, great. Thank you. Yep, that's all the questions we have. Okay. Thank you so much, Shauna, for, for joining us and uh, enlightening us on what's going on. Uh, just a quick thought, uh, you might want to visit with artists a little bit. I think as the larger ACB organization. There may be some other places where this information would be excellent for folks to hear. Yes, I appreciate that. Yes, I mean, I'll speak to independent support groups, ACB, I mean, local chapters, state, nationally. So we're, we're out there. We are educating. Like I say, we always have, you know, someone who's new, visually impaired, or totally blind. So it's important to continue to educate awareness. So I appreciate um, being a part of the convention. And um, like I say, my first, very exciting. Thank y'all. Well, thank you. Thank you. And maybe okay. maybe we'll see you in Las Vegas next year. You never know. Yes. Yes. In person. I can't wait for that. Yes. Yeah, Usually, typically I do my presentations in person. So I'm looking forward to that. Very good. Well, thank okay. you. Thanks for hosting this, Scott. And artists, thanks for all of your help. No problem. Next, we're going to do uh, the video from You Selected. Welcome to Inside USI. In this episode, we'll demonstrate how accessible our equipment is for visually impaired operators. 
we'll also show our full line of vending equipment and detail how our new Flex Controller is improving machine serviceability and profitability for operators. Be sure to stick around until the end when we'll reveal our newest projects and developments in technology. Thanks for joining us for Inside USI. Accessibility is a huge priority for USI. Standard operator service mode on both 7-inch and 10.1-inch touchscreens includes a talker-ready control board and a screen color invert feature. Just plug in a 3.5mm headphone or speaker jack into the control board to listen. Set price. System update. Tap again to open. System updates. User accessibility is just a part of our overall commitment to serving our customers. We realize USI is nothing without our loyal customers and pledge to continue to go the extra mile to serve them. Here at USI, we feel as if we're a partner with our customers. We're part of the family. If our customers need us to be at their facility, we're there. And I think uh, as a supplier to this industry, you've got to take that extra step. It's not when you do something well that your customers take notice. It's when something doesn't go well in the field and how you adapt to that. I think customer service is our number one uh, priority. We've been a leader in the vending industry for 90 years now, having started back in 1931. Our goal when designing and manufacturing vending equipment has been to provide the operator with the lowest cost of ownership. That means we work hard to make sure our equipment is built to last, manufactured with the best materials, and includes the latest technology. The smooth corner design of our equipment is especially friendly to blind and disabled operators. We're excited about the difference our Evoke line of equipment has made in the industry and will make well into the future. You select it boasts a full line of vending equipment to meet all your customers' needs. Our products are built to last, providing customers with the lowest cost of ownership in the industry. USI equipment is built to help you make money and save time. Our feature snack merchandiser, the Evoke Snack 6, has a large capacity and more space for high profit items. You can see here the Evoke 6 ambient snack machine. We have seven full trays. The top two trays are the large snack size items, serving size items. And you can see then below we have five additional trays that uh, are pretty flexible as far as the types of products that uh, can be dispensed. Your, your height is basically your only limiting factor as long as you stay under seven and a half inches. The ADA bin uh, is down below. It's the largest capacity bin in the industry. The 10.1-inch uh, touchscreen you see there uh, is also a uh, USI design. Uh, it is driven by the Flex platform. 
Uh, this year, uh, an added feature now is the uh, video portion of it. The videos can be downloaded at the machine uh, via USB stick, or you can do it remotely. In addition to the Evoke snack machine, the Evoke refrigerated line of machines are helping operators deliver cold drinks, sandwiches, salads, and more. The health safety feature can program the machine by selection, range, and row. Here's a closer look at our Evoke elevator. Our entire Evoke line, including ambient and refrigerated machines, use the Flex Controller. Our Flex Controller is the brain behind the enhanced capabilities of these machines. The Flex Control Board is designed to maximize efficiencies and provide ease of use for operators. This includes an intuitive service mode and premier accessibility. Change prices by individual item, multiple items, or all items at one time. Easily identify software versions and set up customer contact details. Flex also provides a seamless and engaging user experience with 7-inch and 10.1-inch touchscreens. iCart provides menu browsing, shopping cart mode, and displays product nutrition information. Index includes the ability to preset prices and common machine settings, remotely planogram your machine, use static and video promotions, and sell combo specials. Pay range is also built into our Flex Control Board, making mobile payments simple for your customers. Now it's time to reveal our latest developments in vending technology. Get to know the new Evoke Market and Uvend technology. This is the new Evoke Market from YouSelectIt. The Evoke Market is a satellite merchandise cooler connected to a host USI Evoke Snack vending machine. The level of inventory control offered by the Evoke Market is a hybrid approach. This approach combines a level of product security similar to a vending machine, along with the flexibility and product accessibility of a retail micromarket. The Evoke Market is ideal for offering snacks, cold drinks, and refrigerated food in a single solution. To use the Evoke Market, your customer enters payment at the Evoke Snack Machine. Once payment is received, your customer chooses the Unlock option on the Evoke Snack Machine's touchscreen to access the products within the Evoke Market Cooler. 
customers then open the Evoke Market Cooler and choose one or multiple items. The Evoke Market Cooler will beep while the door is open and will double beep when the door closes and locks. Once the Evoke Market door is closed, it locks automatically. Your customer then completes the purchase of their items by scanning the items via the user interface scanner on the Evoke Snack Machine. Not only are we excited about releasing the Evoke Market in the future, we are also looking forward to equipping our machines with UVEN sanitization technology. With the ability to kill viruses, including COVID-19 and influenza, UVEN technology is a proven UV light sanitizing solution. Workplace safety has never been more important than it is today, and organizations are finding new, innovative ways to promote healthier and safer work environments, including implementing safer ways to provide employees and customers with on-site food and beverage services that exceed the bare minimum of just filled and working. You select its patent-pending UVEN technology makes the high-touch surfaces of vending equipment safer by utilizing UV light to kill or inactivate up to 99.9% of viruses and bacteria. In fact, UVEN has been proven by an independent third-party accredited testing lab to be effective on some of the most common viruses, including influenza and the COVID-19 virus. In conjunction with an automated motion sensor that ensures no presence is detected in front of the machine before activating, UVEN safely and quickly sanitizes the machine's high-touch surfaces after every demand peak. UVEN's visible blue light helps locations show they prioritize workplace safety, and it gives locations, employees, and customers peace of mind when getting their next snack or drink. UVEN utilizes the same UV light sanitization technology that's been used for decades in healthcare organizations, schools, prisons, retailers, and the transportation industry. In comparison to other sanitization solutions, UVEN is superior. For starters, UVEN harnesses the natural sanitization power of sunlight to achieve fast sanitation, is effective against bacteria and viruses, and has a long life expectancy of over 40,000 hours of continuous use. In comparison, most antimicrobial solutions only combat bacteria, take over 30 times longer to achieve the same effectiveness through a chemical-based process, and must be replaced every 90 days. Public, high-touch surfaces such as doorknobs, handrails, and buttons on a vending machine can be breeding grounds for bacteria and viruses. And, while no surface sanitization technology is a substitute for good personal hygiene practices and periodic cleaning of the equipment, UVEN technology can complement existing equipment cleaning practices in order to provide a safer venting experience. Equipment with UVEN technology is the perfect solution to replace old, outdated equipment as well as a potentially safer substitution to open access micro markets and cafeterias. As the equipment manufacturer, you select it offers UVEN on all of its most popular machines. Today, safety is key. Our UVC light sanitization technology provides a safer venting experience, leading with UVEN technology while providing the equipment reliability, product variety, energy efficiency, and overall service location managers are looking for is a winning recipe to grow your vending business. Let us help you win new business and provide your existing locations with a new level of protection in their workplaces with UVEN technology. 
For more information, call your local distributor or you select it today at 1-800-247-8709. Thanks for joining us today for Inside USI. We hope you've seen how seriously we take machine accessibility, operator profitability, customer health, and providing the lowest cost of ownership in the industry. Please reach out with any questions you have. We'll see you next time. And then we'll have the Intuit video. Hello, my name is Ted Drake, and I'm the global accessibility leader for Intuit, the makers of QuickBooks, TurboTax, Mint, T-Sheets, and Credit Karma. We've been a proud sponsor of the Sagebrush Conference for Randolph Shepard vendors, and we look forward to this year's virtual event. We've all been affected by the COVID pandemic, but this is especially true for small business owners. For many, there have been few opportunities to adapt to the closed buildings, reduce tourism, and shift to virtual universities and government work. At Intuit, our success metrics are based on powering prosperity of small businesses. Our goal is to increase the number of businesses that succeed past the five-year mark. So we've taken significant steps to help small businesses survive the COVID shutdowns and transformations. I'd like to share some of these tools with you. Laura Belaz is into its chief marketing officer and the general manager of strategic partnerships. She explained, in service to our company's mission of powering prosperity around the world, it was imperative that Intuit offer a response that best serves our local and global communities, customers, and small businesses by focusing on what matters most during this time, putting money into the pockets of consumers and small businesses when they need it most. Intuit has created a resource site for businesses like yours. It's located at quickbooks.intuit.com slash small hyphen business slash coronavirus. One word, coronavirus. Once again, that's quickbooks.intuit.com slash small hyphen business slash coronavirus. You'll find links on this page to the resources I'm about to share. Intuit's Aid Assist website includes tools to help small businesses access the Paycheck Protection Program loans and estimate the tax credits for 2020. You can access these at aidassist, one word, dot intuit.com. That's aidassist, A-I-D-A-S-S-I-S-T dot intuit.com. These tools have helped businesses apply for and receive millions of dollars in loans. Intuit's tools will help you understand if you are eligible for a first or second loan and the process for loan forgiveness. You can also estimate how much benefit you can receive from the employee retention credit, paid leave credits, and potential for tax deferral. Here are some additional resources to emerge stronger from the pandemic. Crisis events force us to reevaluate our goals and how to be successful. Intuit has created a series of videos, workshops, articles, and materials to help you rebuild your business and expand your opportunities. Intuit launched a video conferencing platform to support businesses and their customers and employees. This provides a secure, private conversation that would have taken place in person. You can share notes, create action items, and save a transcript for later reference. You can access this at accelerate.intuit.com. That's accelerate.intuit.com.
accelerate.intuit.com. A-C-C-E-L-E-R-A-T-E dot intuit.com. You can also announce that you're reopening with a series of customizable posters, social media posts, signage, and much more with our marketing support site. These free templates make it easy to create professional announcements for your business. Intuit has also partnered with GoFundMe, that's G-O-F-U-N-D-M-E, GoFundMe, to help you create campaigns for your loyal customers to help you reopen and expand your businesses. Intuit has worked with companies to provide special discounts for COVID responses. You can get discounts for credit monitoring, printing, insurance, and more. Finally, the future is in your hands and knowledge is going to power your prosperity. Intuit has worked with business leaders to provide articles, interviews, and town hall meetings. All of these, as well as links to the government and health resources, are available at our COVID-19 Small Business Resource website. It's located at quickbooks.intuit.com slash small hyphen business slash coronavirus. That's one word, coronavirus. Once again, quickbooks.intuit.com slash small hyphen business slash coronavirus. Thank you and enjoy the Randolph Shepard Sagebrush Conference. All right. Ernest, do we have any drawings or anything coming up? I'm trying to jump into my system here. The next thing is up. You are the um, introduce yeah. our new our speaker. Yeah, and okay. then after the speaker and uh, the awards conversation, then there'll be door prizes. Right. Well, very good. Well, I'm thinking that we do. I haven't looked if our our speaker is here, but uh, the present. I think team, I am. Well, fantastic. Oh, good to see you again. So the present, five things about Las Vegas or Nevada that you might not expect. So with that, we have Dr. Michael Green. He's a history professor and an author, and he's a professor at UNLV. And it's good to see you again. It's great to be back. I uh, had spoken to you all a few years back when you were in Las Vegas, and I was to speak to you here again, and I'm sorry we couldn't do that. We're working under different circumstances, but next year, rest assured, we'll all be in Las Vegas in February to lose all our money. And, and may I say, as a state employee who depends on you to lose your money, I appreciate it. I don't know if people can shoot questions at me. Uh, I'm happy to take them. And uh, what I'll do is talk a bit. The introduction said I'll be talking about five things about Las Vegas or Nevada that you might not expect. And mind you, there's a good possibility you expected it, and I was wrong. And you'll get to complain about that. The first Great. thing on my list is that Las Vegas is the easternmost suburb of Los Angeles. There's an old line attributed to H.L. Mencken that Los Angeles is 19 suburbs in search of a metropolis. And really, Las Vegas is the 20th suburb. And the connections between Las Vegas and Los Angeles have long been profound uh, in a way that if you are familiar with the history of the gold rush and the Comstock load and Virginia City and all of that stuff, 
northern Nevada and northern California are connected. But this goes back to when in the 1830s, Las Vegas became a stop on the old Spanish Trail. And very early, Las Vegas got a reputation because we had water, which made this area very attractive to horse thieves, which means that almost two centuries later, Las Vegas has the same reputation because we're still attractive to horse thieves, (laughs) among others. At that point, the old Spanish Trail went from the Albuquerque-Santa Fe area to Los Angeles. And then if you track how Las Vegas develops, in 1855, the Mormon Church built a mission in Las Vegas as part of the Mormon Road, which went from Salt Lake City to Southern California, specifically to a mission in San Bernardino. Eventually, the Mormon missionaries leave. The area becomes a series of ranches. And one of the ranchers, a woman named Helen Stewart, sells the land to Senator William Andrews Clark of Montana in 1902 so he can build a railroad from Salt Lake to, you guessed it, Los Angeles. And we're a pit stop. And what you see then with the railroad being based in Los Angeles, if you know anything about Nevada, you know our we have a city named Reno. We in Las Vegas tend not to acknowledge it. But that's okay because Reno often doesn't like to acknowledge us. Well, the truth is that in Las Vegas, really up to around 1930, it was far easier to be in contact with Los Angeles than Reno. The long-distance telephone lines ran to L.A. They didn't run to Reno. The first highway built was to Los Angeles. It didn't go to Reno. And there's always been this sort of disconnection between the two areas. This continues in the 1930s when some reformers in California decided to close down illegal gambling. One of the reformers was the state attorney general, Earl Warren, and he shut down cruise ships off the Southern California coast. The mayor of Los Angeles, Fletcher Bowron, shut down illegal gambling operations in his area. Well, where did these illegal gambling operators go? One of them, Bill Harrah, went to Reno, and eventually his company went to Las Vegas as well. But almost all of them moved up the highway to Las Vegas, and they really form a a key group here in terms of building up the industry. Sam Boyd came up here. He goes on to build the Union Plaza, the California, Samstown, and he and his son end up running the Stardust. Wilbur Clark came up here. He ends up with the Desert Inn where the win is now located, and several others who also built casinos here, including the Golden Nugget, where you all met last time that I talked to you. That was built by a fellow named Guy McAfee, who had been a Los Angeles vice cop until he figured out he could make more money in vice than being a vice cop. So he started running illegal casinos in Los Angeles. Bowron drove him out. He comes up to Las Vegas, and among other places he was involved in, the Golden Nugget. And this has continued to the present where the vast majority of our tourist traffic, and I do mean literally traffic in terms of cars, are coming from Los Angeles. Uh, One of the jokes around here is that I-15 is the world's largest parking lot going to Las Vegas Friday night and leaving Las Vegas Sunday night. And there is still this sort of California connection uh, that persists with the talk of building a high-speed train from Las Vegas to Los Angeles and the architecture, the sprawling suburbs of Las Vegas, you really see a lot of similarities to Los Angeles. That is my first one. Now, number two 
is that Las Vegas and the federal government are old frenemies. I teach my students what I call Green's Law, which is that Americans oppose federal spending in 49 states, just not the one they're in. It's okay for the federal government to spend money where they are. Well, Las Vegas benefits greatly from the federal government for much of its history. The construction of Hoover Dam beginning in 1931 really enables Las Vegas to avoid the worst of the Great Depression. During World War II, there's a magnesium plant built southeast of town that has led since to the creation of the city of Henderson. And northeast of town, the Army Air Corps took over our municipal airport, turned it into a gunnery school, and that's now Nellis Air Force Base. And these have been major contributors to the growth of Southern Nevada, to its economic development, and tourism, because people would come here to look at the dam, to work at the airfield or visit people at the airfield, and so on, so that the gaming industry grew with it. Well, in 1951, part of Nellis Air Force Base was turned into what was called the Atomic Proving Ground, the Nevada test site. And there were above-ground atomic tests here from 1951 to 63, about 100 overall. Then there's the test ban treaty. The rest of the tests are underground. And there's somewhere around 900 of them before there's a ban in 1992. So today that site is a research facility. But over that period, the federal government setting off these bombs, again, contributed to the local economy. And at the same time, Las Vegas marketed atomic testing as a tourist attraction encouraging people to come here and watch the bombs go off. And we had everything from the atomic boogie dance to the atomic hairdo. So Las Vegas was really into all of this. Well, in the mid-1960s, Las Vegas had used up most of its water supply from an underground aquifer. The federal government starts work on the Southern Nevada Water Project. And that's what pumps water from Lake Mead into Southern Nevada. And without it, I would not be talking to you at the moment because there'd be no water. Now, that means the federal government's been our friend. But then there are ways in which it's unintentionally been our friend. Uh, tonight, I am going to an event at the Mob Museum, which was our federal courthouse. We're celebrating our 10th anniversary. I say we because I'm on the museum board. And the Mob Museum is located there mainly because in 1950, Senator Estes Kefauver brought his committee investigating organized crime to that courthouse and in the course of a day of hearings figured out that there was organized crime in Las Vegas, which proved that you have to get up early in the morning to slip one past Estes Kefauver. But his hearings lead to crackdowns around the country. Cities where he held hearings, like, say, Kansas City, they really went after the mob. Well, if you're involved in organized crime, especially illegal gambling, where are you going to go if Kefauver leads to you being shut down? So we get another in-migration, kind of the way that we had one in the 30s from California. So Kefauver didn't mean to be our friend, but he turned out to be a frenemy, a friendly enemy. Another one was J. Edgar Hoover, who could have gone after the mob and didn't. And when he eventually did, he and Bobby Kennedy both, when Kennedy was attorney general, used illegal wiretaps. They really couldn't do anything to organize crime at that time. And so Las Vegas was able to function and even flourish. But eventually things changed. In terms of organized crime, the federal government enacted the RICO statute in 1970, the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, 
which enabled them to go after organized crime and really help drive the mob out of Las Vegas. But at the same time, with more nuclear power, there was a problem of figuring out where to put the waste. And starting in 1982, the federal government began trying to turn part of the Nevada test site into the nation's first high-level radioactive waste repository. Well, they still haven't been able to do it. Nevada has fought this, and it's part of the whole idea that the federal government is now out to get us. They're trying to force us to accept this nuclear waste. You throw in the sagebrush rebellion of the 70s and this whole notion that the federal government should not control federal land, and suddenly Nevada has become anti-federal in some significant ways. Now, I do have to mention this uh, for your fun. We had a U.S. senator whose command of English was not great, and he once referred to the proposed nuclear repository as a nuclear suppository, which would have been a good line if he'd meant it as a funny, but it wasn't. However, you'll be glad to know that for years when I'm teaching freshmen and I tell them this, I get the most puzzled looks. They don't quite understand that issue yet. Someday they will. And that's what I tell them. Someday. Well, my third thing you might not realize is how central discrimination has been to the history of Las Vegas. And most of the focus historically has been on the mistreatment of the black community. You do not get a large African-American population in this area until basic magnesium in the 40s and the growth of the strip in that period. But even before that, if you were African-American, you were segregated. First in the downtown area in a certain site, later west of downtown in what became known as West Las Vegas or the historic West Side. And there was no running water. There were no paved streets. And eventually, as happened nationally, there's a civil rights movement with leaders from the church and the middle and professional classes of African-Americans who are able to force change. They also get some help from some enlightened politicians. In 1958, Nevada elected a governor, Grant Sawyer, who believed strongly that segregation was wrong. There were limits on his power, but he did all he could to help. Now, you also find women are the victims of discrimination. And again, this is part of a national trend. You, I would not blame it exclusively on Las Vegas, of course. But there was even a law at one point against women working as casino dealers, uh, the fear being they would take jobs from men. You did not find a lot of discrimination against the Hispanic population, mainly because there was not a large Hispanic population. You don't see a big influx there until 1980 and beyond. And in fact, the Hispanic community has ended up wielding a lot of political power through the culinary union because the union itself is very diverse. And yeah, they've unionized most of the hotel casinos. They're very powerful. All four were of the grandparents were European Jews. Two came from the Russia-Ukraine area. Two came from Hungary. And uh, I can pass this along as kind of the example. My grandfather never knew his birth date. The papers were lost. But he was born near Kiev in Ukraine the winter the bridge burned down. And it took me a lot of years before it finally hit me, how would a bridge burn down in winter? And there's only one logical answer, a pogrom. The czar's forces came after them. Well, the people who left southern and eastern Europe in the late 19th and early 20th centuries were fleeing oppression. 
you had mainly Italians and Eastern European Jews. They came to the United States and they formed the backbone, if you will, of modern American organized crime. Certainly not all Italian and Jewish immigrants, not at all. But if you think of how organized crime evolved in that period, the names are Luciano, Costello, Lansky, Siegel, and so on. They were victims of discrimination, both where their families came from and then when they got to the United States and often were forced into areas of town, Little Italy, for example. And then they built hotel casinos in Las Vegas and discriminated. They would not employ African-Americans other than as porters and maids and dishwashers for many years. And they wouldn't employ women in key positions for the most part. So the irony of our discrimination is discriminated against practiced it. Continuing, related to that, uh, this is my soundbite. A lot of our founding fathers and mothers in Las Vegas had rap sheets. Not all of them, but some of them. And many of them functioned under very unusual circumstances. Some of our pioneer women set very different standards. I mentioned Helen Stewart selling her land to the railroad owner. Helen Stewart came here with her husband in 1882. He had obtained the land, about, oh, close to 2,000 acres, in the Las Vegas Valley, and he wanted to be a rancher. Well, they'd been living in the city. They already had three kids. And he talked her into moving to the boondocks. And in 1884, he was killed by neighboring ranchers while Helen was pregnant with their fifth child. She had the child, stayed at the ranch, ran it, and ultimately sold it. This is one woman. Her nearest neighbors killed her husband, and she stuck it out. She stayed with it. Well, this called for a certain toughness, and she certainly had it. Another woman who was incredibly important to our development was Maud Frazier, who was school superintendent for 20 years. She got the city and county to go along with building our first high school, a separate Las Vegas high school. And when it opened in 1930, it had seating for 500 students. And everyone in town said, Maud has got to be nuts because there will never be 500 high school students in this town. Well, she had some vision. When I graduated from high school here in 82, we had 500 students just in my graduating class. And the number of high schools has tripled since then. But a lot of our founders did come here under questionable circumstances. A man named Mo Dalitz provides a fine example of this. He was involved with the mob in Detroit in Cleveland. He ran illegal casinos across the Kentucky line, and he came here as an investor in the Desert Inn, took over the hotel, and got it built. He later was the main builder of the Stardust, and he built some other hotel casinos. He also wanted to get involved in other forms of investment, and he and one of his partners teamed up with two local building developers, Erwin Molaski and Mervyn Adelson, and they created a development company that built a major hospital, a major mall. They built lots of housing developments. They bought a failing country club and turned it into a success. They bought other malls and turned them into successes. And eventually, this is where it becomes fun. Mulaski and Adelson decided to go Hollywood. Well, well, the mobsters didn't want to go Hollywood. They didn't want attention. But Mulaski and Adelson formed a partnership with a couple of producers named Lee Rich and Earl Hamner. And they called it Lorimar Productions, which means that you go from Mo Dalitz to the Waltons and to Dallas, and to Falcon Crest, and other shows you may recall. So there's a mob connection to these shows and Las Vegas? Yeah, it's possible. It could happen. 
At the same time, one of the problems that Dalitz and others had was getting investment. It was very hard for them to raise money to build. They had to use the money they had because bankers did not want to lend money to people who may have organized crime or illegal gambling connections. And the logic of this, if you think about it, is a mobster goes into a bank and says, um, I want to get a loan. And the banker says, great, we give 5% interest. The mobster says, no, I'm not paying interest. Well, yeah, there, there could be problems. Well, a group of Mormon bankers from Salt Lake City wanted to open a bank here and sent down a guy named Parry Thomas to run the bank. The Bank of Las Vegas opened in 1954. A longtime local resident named Nate Mack had a son named Jerry who'd gone to school at UCLA and didn't really want to come home, but Nate thought it was a good idea and talked him into it. And Jerry went into the bank with Parry, and they became the first bank to lend money to casinos. And Thomas said not one of the loans was written down because mobsters didn't write things down. That could get you indicted. And all they wanted was a handshake deal, and they'd pay you back. Thomas said, if you treat them like legitimate businessmen, they'll respond in kind. And they never wanted a contract. And they certainly knew what a contract was, if you get my drift. Meanwhile, Mac was involved in real estate development. And their bank and their partners developed a lot of land here as well. But they helped make possible the growth of the gaming industry by being willing to lend money. And ultimately, at my university, our basketball team plays in an arena named for them, the Thomas and Mac. So those are just some of our characters. But I also want to say a word, and this is my fifth thing you might not realize about Las Vegas. We don't implode all of our past. The Mob Museum is an example of this. And the federal government said, we cannot build a courthouse by a red light district. Get rid of the red light district. The city said, look, this is the Depression. We find them. They pay fees. We need the money. You get the courthouse built, then we'll get rid of the red light district. So the federal government completed the courthouse in 1933, and the city did get rid of the red light district eight years later. They needed to think about it a little. Well, the federal government had built other courthouses, and they were ready to tear down this building. And our new mayor around 2000, Oscar Goodman, a longtime lawyer who'd represented mobsters, said, wait a minute, this is a great old building. We can save it. And the government said, fine, you can buy it for $1. But it needs to be cultural. You need to make it a cultural center. And Goodman proposed a mob museum. And he tells the story. He went to talk to the Italian-American club, and there, there was a lot of upset about this because, sadly and incorrectly, many Italians have suffered from the image of being connected to the mob. And Oscar said he finally told him, well, I, no, no, it's a mop museum. It's dedicated to cleaning. But in a way, it is cleansing because it talks about organized crime, law enforcement, sometimes where they met, sometimes where they didn't. But this is an example of the city preserving a historic building. And you always hear about strip hotels being imploded. Well, we preserved this. We also have a place called the Springs Preserve, a 180-acre desert central park west of downtown where our springs originally bubbled up that includes museums, it includes trails, and a lot of great environmental information. We have a county museum that includes something called Heritage Street, where they moved houses that were going to be torn down in the name of progress. And it's now a preserved area where you get to see how people lived in the periods when the houses were built. And by the way, the longtime curator of the museum who helped protect these houses was Mark Hall Patton, who was the guy Rick always was calling on Pawn Stars 
to tell him about stuff. And by the way, poor Mark had to actually get a life-size cardboard cutout of himself made because people kept coming to the museum wanting their photo taken with him, and he had to work. So they put up a cardboard cutout of Mark in the lobby, and you could get your photo taken with the guy from Pawn Stars. But Las Vegas also includes the oldest standing building in the state of Nevada, part of the Mormon fort from the missionaries in 1855, and the second oldest building, uh, which was at the Kyle Ranch, which is where Archibald Stewart was murdered. And in Boulder City, the Boulder Dam Hotel has been preserved with a great museum. And so what we have in Southern Nevada is a bigger commitment to history than a lot of people would think we have. It's just that our history is a little bit different from other places, after all, because of organized crime. Until you stop and think that the people who colonized Virginia and Jamestown in 1607 were mostly people they didn't want around England. And Massachusetts Bay was Puritans who weren't really wanted around England and the Pilgrims who weren't really wanted. And Georgia was a penal colony. And suddenly, Las Vegas may actually be a little more normal than you think. But don't tell anybody, because if people think we're normal, they won't come here and lose money. And as our man said, you need to come here and lose money. So thank you very much. And I wanted to leave a few minutes for questions if you have any. I want to jump in with a question. The gentleman that was murdered on the ranch, why was he murdered? This is an incredible story. The ranch where he was murdered, the Kyle Ranch, was settled by a couple of guys who had been friends of the rancher from whom Stewart took over. And they thought Archibald Stewart had swindled him. They really hadn't. He wasn't a good businessman at all. But it became kind of a hangout for gunslingers. And one of the ranch hands of the Stewart Ranch wanted to leave and go to work there and said something to Helen about it. And she said, well, Archibald's out of town. You'll need to wait till he comes back. And he said something that made Helen very upset. And when Archibald got home, she told him, and Archibald immediately took off for that ranch. And no one knows. She never said exactly what it was, but she was pregnant. It was the Victorian era when sex did not exist, supposedly. And my theory is he said something about that baby and who was the real father. That made Archibald mad enough to ride over that ranch. And so he ends up being killed. And amazingly, Helen, hear anything, she's miles away. And a couple hours later, a horseback rider comes up and hands her a note from the owner of the ranch. He said, Mrs. Stewart, your husband is dead. Get the body. And that's how she finds out. But she's called the First Lady of Las Vegas, and she she was. She, she was an incredible person. Great story. I have a question for you. This is Artis. We visited the Mob Museum, and we thought it was really incredible, all the information there. It was, and there was even audio information, mm-hmm. too, which we really appreciated. I, I was curious, the museums that you um, have, I know you're part of that group. Do you guys update them regularly where there's new stuff all the time, or how does that go? Well, I would say it does depend on the museum. Uh, we have the National Atomic Testing Museum, and they are constantly changing things as we learn new things about nuclear power and the, the history of, of matters atomic. And I'd say the uh, museum in the Boulder Dam Hotel. And Hoover Dam has a visitor's center with material. In fact, some of our students are updating it now. So we do update things, and it kind of depends. Sometimes it's what comes over the transom, you might say. You know, what sort of material becomes available? Because what you really want, if there's new information, you can change the interpretation. But what we really love, of course, are artifacts. Uh, And people like to see things, and uh, if they can, touch them. 
Uh, the county museum, for example, is, is very tactile in some ways. They have things where you, it's designed for you to be able to touch and hold things. And uh, we have a little of that at the Mob Museum, probably not enough. Uh, but yes, they are updated. And uh, sometimes we get very lucky and someone comes in and says, hey, you know, I've got this. What? You've got that? We want that. But I'll well, I thought it was it. cool when you could sit in the uh, electric chair and somebody could take a picture of you in the electric and, chair. And it's still yeah. there. <laughs> We're still taking photos in the electric chair. I have one of my wife, mother-in-law. But I'll tell you, some of the things you run into, uh, there was a recent auction of Al Capone material. Mm. And we have a budget and we have some money. But one of the things we really wanted cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. There was just no way. Uh, we did get some things we did like, and, and they're going to show up in the museum as we're renovating. But uh, an example of this, something you can't touch in the Mob Museum. I don't know if you, when you were there, we had the Underground, which is a speakeasy. Oh, yes, we were there. We were there. Okay, so there are a couple of cases where they rotate dresses. Uh, we had an exhibit years ago on Prohibition-era fashion. And my wife, who has vintage linen booths at a couple of antique malls, she found some 1920s and 30s-era dresses. There are others who have them, too. But the dresses she found that we bought sometimes show up in there. And it's just that, oh, somebody came in with a dress. Great. I have a friend who lives in Texas who said, oh, my, by the, I was just talking with him. He said, by the way, my, my grandmother had these change purses from the 20s. Would the museum want them? Yeah, we want them. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. So we, uh, and sometimes students are involved in this, where our students helped get a lot of the material on Prohibition Era fashion, where they reached out uh, via Twitter and other means, and people responded. It was great. So I want to say to all of you, if you've got uh, stuff, Rick and artists know how to find me, and uh, let me know, and I'll be, I'll be glad to help you out. Great. I want to ask you a question about Las Vegas moving forward, let's say, in the next five to ten years. Certainly, the pandemic has played a role in what's happened on the Strip, et cetera, in Las Vegas. What do you see being there all the time? What are some of the big changes you're going to experience in Las Vegas from all of this? Well, it's going to be interesting to see. We have come back very well. Revenue is doing well. So clearly people want to get out and about. Is there going to be more attention to making sure we are healthy when we're here? Las Vegas doesn't cater to people who want to be healthy. But that said, you know, are we going to be more aware of the, the concerns that COVID-19 create? I think we will be. The convention business is the one to watch. And you all provide an example of that. Now, we want you to come back, of course. And I run a historical organization that has conferences. It is cheaper to do this on Zoom. You all who are listening to me yammer, you don't have to pay for a hotel room. That can be a benefit. But that also detracts. You don't get to hang out together. And so I think there's going to be some balancing going on there. Uh, and that's an effect of COVID and the pandemic. Something not really COVID and pandemic related, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, you may all be aware from the news that one of the ways they have figured out the trends in positive cases or the spread is checking wastewater. Water is our issue here. We're in a mega drought. Las Vegas has a normal amount of rainfall, but the West is in a drought. And how much water is out there is going to have a lot to say about how we do in years to come. That makes sense. All right. Any um, other questions? Uh, I, one quick thought I had was a number of years ago, they started the monorail, and they were going to do that in three phases, mm -hmm. and that was never completed. Is there any plans to finish that, or is that going to stay as is, or is that going to go away? I think it's going to stay as is if it stays. 
There is talk of uh, light rail in town, but the monorail became something of a mess. It never made the money it was supposed to make. It goes down the east side of the strip, but not the west. It doesn't go all the way down the strip. And it was supposed to go to the airport. And cab companies didn't want that. Well, now with Uber and Lyft and so on, the cab companies don't matter so much, but Uber and Lyft don't want it. So I'm afraid it's kind of going to remain much the same. There is uh, an underground being done by Elon Musk that is supposed to go under the strip. How this is going to turn out, we don't know yet. Uh, Right now, it's at the convention center. And uh, in the news today, I saw Mr. Musk is in some trouble in California. Uh, So who knows what's going to happen with him? But uh, I don't think that monorail is going to be the center of things. I could be wrong, but that's my guess. That's what we've kind of been waiting for. I personally have been waiting for that connection to the airport. That would be the... Oh, I'd love it myself. I, I live like oh, about three miles east of the Strip, and it's not hard to get to the airport, but but it would just be wonderful to have that option. So here's hoping. Uh, yeah, all right. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, I think hey, we got... Yes, you have hands up. Okay, area code 615, ending in 429. You may unmute. You're in Nashville. <laughs> Actually, I'm in uh, Murfreesboro, which is south of Nashville. But, I, yeah. I was close, um, but yeah, great. You were. You were very close. You were good. I just wanted to say hi and thanks for having me on the call. My question is this. In some federal parks, blind people get free admission to the state parks in particular states. Mm-hmm. Would this museum fall under that uh, free admission or is there a charge for handicapped people or a reduced rate it does depend on the museum or state park the mormon fort for example is a state park right but i think there are certain reductions in some of the museums where where it's more expensive i mentioned the the mormon fort state park it's like two dollars to get in their attitude is kind of you know we're already discounted folks (laughs) but actually i am not sure myself and Frankly, I will say as a board member of the Mob Museum, I'm going to check and bring it up if it isn't. Great. What is it? I mean, I have power. Um, (laughs) I live in a home owned by two cats. I don't pretend to have a lot of influence, but I'll try. What is the cost (laughs) of the Mob Museum now? Well, the cost, it usually runs uh, to get in about $24. Okay. Now, groups, if you all were here and went as a group, that's automatically going to be lower. And then they, they've been known to find ways to reduce it further. I'm bringing my students there on Tuesday from a class, and so they'll, they'll pay a student rate. Or actually, I'm paying the student rate. The students are not going to pay. So we, we do have certain ways of making things work. But I, I, I'm going to find out if we have a policy. Well, thank you. Keep us updated. Okay. Any other questions? Well, we can try. Kim Vanderbilt, you went, she's had trouble before the last couple of days. But you can unmute, Kim. Very informative. Thank you. All right. Is that the end of our questions? That's it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your presentation today. It's been great to catch up with you again. And if you have a little time, next February after the 20th, we're there the 20th through the 24th. Please stop by and say hi. We'd love to see you. Well, I'm going to do my best. Here's to being here. Yes. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. You all take care and be well. Thanks. Thank you. Herbert said he was going to try to be on, so I'm not sure if he's here or not. Well, we certainly could talk for just a quick minute about uh, our past presidents, uh, uh, Ray Washburn and uh, Terry Camerdale, and certainly we uh, do miss them both. 
And uh, we do have some recording of Terry that we did last year. We, we don't have any available at this minute. But as you listen to our podcast of this, as we uh, go forward, that will be included. You'll get to hear Terry's comments from last year. And uh, we do miss him. And we do, uh, our hearts go out to his family, for sure, and to Ray's as well. They, they meant a lot to us here at RSVA. And uh, we're so honored to have them. They were a part of this group. And uh, we, we move forward, but we keep you in our hearts as well, because we know we know what this program meant to you as well. Uh, Artem, you know, no. He's not here. Okay. We just did want to mention briefly our... Um, awards for uh, sagebrush scholarships we didn't award any this year because what the award encompasses is a free trip and hotel and a per diem so we didn't really think it was fair to give an award for uh, just the uh, virtual so we're moving that that person will be that george arsenal winner next year and then we'll be choosing a terry camardell Advocacy Award, which is a brand new award um, in memory of Terry, and that one will be uh, for next year. So look for those announcements for awards for next year's Sagebrush. And then I'll go ahead and give some door prizes. Great. I have James Broadnax from Tennessee. I have Audrey Crisp from Tennessee, and I have Mike Rebitch from Tennessee. Ribbit. Wow. So this time, Tennessee was the... Tennessee swept the board. <laughs> wow, that's pretty impressive. Well, congratulations <laughs> to you three. That's awesome. All right. Thank you, Artis. So yeah. we might as well actually be on slightly early side if I have Eric here with us. Uh, we've been running a little bit behind all day. We got into some topics that folks were interested in. And hey, that's that's what this is about. People have Actually, questions. there might be a little video here. I'm sorry. I... Oh, I forgot okay. about that. Yeah, there okay. is a, a video from uh, Seeing Eye. Here's your house salad. Logo, the Seeing Eye. A blue-eyed woman sits at a restaurant. My name is Jessica. I've been blind since birth. I have a Seeing Eye dog, and her name is Jamie. She's three years old. I'm a teacher. I'm married, and I have a 13-month-old son. His name is Joshua. I received my first guide dog from the Seeing Eye. Trees dot rolling green hills. A street sign outside a gated driveway reads Seeing Eye Way. The Seeing Eye is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that breeds, raises, and trains Seeing Eye dogs for people who are blind or visually impaired. Jim Kessler, Assistant Director, Instruction and Training. The mission of the Seeing Eye is to enhance the independence, dignity, and self-confidence of blind people through the use of a seeing eye dog. A golden retriever pants and blinks its brown eyes. Since 1929, the seeing eye has made over 17,000 partnerships throughout the United States and Canada. U.S. and Canadian flags hang outside the seeing eye. A statue of a man with a guide dog stands in a park. Fee has not changed since 1934, and it, for a blind individual, represents just a, a symbol of respect and dignity by paying this nominal fee. A shepherd, lab, and golden retriever play in the kennel yard. We rely solely on donations. We get no funding from government, state. An instructor scratches a dog's neck. We're a philanthropic organization, so we are able to run our day-to-day operations through donations from individuals. We have individuals from throughout the country, from all walks of life, who want to contribute to the seeing eye to 
help and promote our mission. Jessica and Joshua smile at Jamie. A student who I've trained multiple times. He's he's a graduate. He's 90 years old. And um, he stops me. He's like, he's like, Jim, he's like, there is no better feeling than picking up a harness handle and working with a dog. The feeling of freedom that I get from this is indescribable. It's the bond that you get from having a dog. You have a partner with you. You have a friend with you. Being a mother is one of the most life-changing things that I've ever had to experience. It was definitely an adjustment. I can't imagine my life without a seeing-eye dog. Um, I'm, I can't imagine my life without them. I lead the life that I lead thanks to Jamie, or and before that, thanks to Hetty. And I just want to really say thank you. Jessica smiles. Her blue eyes shine. Logo, The Seeing Eye. Please visit seeingeye.org slash donate. All right, so our next presenter is Eric Bridges. And Eric is from the American Council for the Blind. And he's here to update us on uh, some of the programs that ACB has and talk to us about this thing called a convention that they're having coming up. So, uh, Eric, uh, Welcome. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's it's wonderful to be back at Sagebrush. I've had the great fortune to be with you all probably three or four times down through the years and at the Golden Nugget. So thanks for having me back. Well, we're glad to have you back. Um, my name is Eric Bridges. I'm the executive director of ACB, and uh, it's a position that I've held for about six years. I've, I've been working for ACB. Uh, actually, it's going on about 15 years, but I've, I've been a member of ACB for over 20 years. I have the great fortune to be able to to work with a great group of people. When is Lonnie coming over? Outstanding membership. Over the last couple of years, a lot of change uh, has taken place within the organization. And I thought I'd give you uh, a little bit of highlights of what uh, what what happened last year. Uh, some of the stuff that we're working on for this year in terms of our leadership conference, which is going to take place uh, March 12th through the 15th uh, virtually, which encompasses our affiliate president's meeting as well as legislative seminar. Uh, and then uh, we get into the convention a little bit because it's, it's going to be even different than it has been the last three years. So um and and uh, happy to to take questions uh, towards the end. So uh, last year uh, was a, a big year for ACB in terms of the ability of of the organization to continue to evolve and do more for the membership and the broader community. We were able to hire and introduce five new employees to the organization uh, in areas such as communications membership services, advocacy, and governmental affairs, and other places. So, you know, a lot has gone on with the organization. And so much of it uh, has really come from the desire of the, of the leadership to be able to strategically focus in some key areas. So one of the key areas that we focused on last year was this little thing called ACB Radio. And Rick Morin, who's uh, been part of Sagebrush for many years, 
happy to say that he accepted our offer to come aboard and be the ACB media and IT manager earlier this week. And it's a, it's a role that he's essentially been playing for a long time. But last year, we really took a look at the content that was on ACB radio, how it was being disseminated, and the website itself, acbradio.org, and revamped everything. Uh, because ultimately, what, we, what we've been doing the last several years has been far more than just an internet radio stream or streams. We got very much into the podcast realm uh, at the beginning of the pandemic through the creation of our community events and all of that. As well, we started a blog, ACB Voices, acbvoices.org. I encourage you to go there. And so as we were looking at all of this media, we did. We elected to really rebrand because it, it seemed to be more fitting for ACB Radio to become ACB Media because it's all of these things. So acbmedia.org is where you go to listen to a ton of content. We now have 10 channels. I believe nearly all of them were utilized at some point last year during the convention. It's been wonderful. So many great volunteers to be able to assist with editing podcasts, getting community events going and up onto the channels. Uh, ACB Media 5 is our community channel where you can hear all the latest community calls that have gone on over the last few days. ACB Media 1 is what was ACB Mainstream, which has a lot of our hallmark programming like Main Menu, which is our technology program, the ACB Advocacy Update, which is our weekly podcast that Clark Rockfall and Swathananda Kumar host, uh, as well as other interesting and different programming. So that's just to name a few. But one of the, our, our achievements from last year was really getting a hold of all of this, making sure that it was in one place and then communicating it with folks. And we did it right before the convention, which was key, and it worked very well. Community events. You know, really, the week that we were told to stay at home as a nation, the week of March 16th of 2020, started this journey for ACB where we were attempting as a staff to figure out how we were going to communicate with the membership. We had just had the ACB Leadership Conference in late February where everybody got together. And it turned out that that would be the last public event that ACB would have until likely this summer in Omaha. So how were we going to do this? Uh, Cindy Hollis, our manager of pardon me, membership engagement, and I and Dan Spoon, our president, sat down to talk through how we would do this and came up with the idea of holding community calls. Now, one of the challenges, if you all will remember back to 2020, is that first week, the old way of, of ACB and many other organizations holding free conference calls was through freeconferencecall.com. And those 800 lines were essentially smashed. Uh, they, they could not keep up with the demand. So we elected to forge a new path and began to utilize Zoom. And as we were figuring out how to use Zoom, we were crowdsourcing ideas and or asking the ACB membership to give us ideas of topics 
for calls. And it didn't take long. We had roughly in the month of April that year, I believe like 20 or 30 events that month. And, you know, it grew exponentially month over month until this upcoming week, we will have well over 100 events in this upcoming week, right? And what started as a two or three community event month in that last half of March of 2020 has now grown to over 7,000 events since then. So we're coming up on the two-year anniversary next month, and there's going to be some uh, some events around that to help promote the, the community events. Uh, it's been It's been wonderful. A lot of special interest affiliates for ACB have held topic-driven conversations through our community. What it represents is a platform, a platform for an individual to bring an idea or a topic to hold an event for a state affiliate or a special interest affiliate to bring topics to hold events. Outside organizations such as the Census Bureau, Comcast, LinkedIn, Microsoft, and others to hold their own community events to announce projects or new releases for software, other things. This platform has been enormous for us to be able to continue to do outreach. And guess what? It was built by blind people for blind people. I think at times we don't think of it that way because we just go to an event. We go through Zoom. The host that is hosting the event happens to be blind. The facilitator happens to be blind. You know, the the guests on the panel most of the time are blind. The attendees are blind and all of it works. So a lot of training had to go on through this period to ensure that there were processes and structure in place so that we could have provide a, a consistent way of communicating, consistent expectations for what would be happening through the course of these calls. Pretty remarkable. You know, we've built this platform while flying at about 30,000 feet the entire time, right? So it's been, it's been challenging. It's been very rewarding. It has been at times exhausting because the pandemic really didn't allow for the team to take a breath because the demand was so great for different and new content. So really excited and I'm proud of the work that's been done by folks like Cindy Hollis, Colby Garrison, Belinda Collins, and frankly, so many others that come regularly, either with ideas or just attend. And then to have that information be disseminated in different ways, folks like Rick Morin, Larry Gassman, Jeff Bishop, and others being able to stream those events live over ACB Media or to edit the podcasts and get them to our podcast feed or to get them up on ACB Media 5 soon after the event has concluded. So there's a lot of stuff. ACB, obviously, is made up of blind people that care about a myriad of different issues. Some advocacy, some social, some in between. And we're attempting to uh, meet the needs and meet folks where they are. Some who may be new to blindness, which the more we do this, the more we learn. We're attracting new and different people, frankly, from all over the world. Dubai, 
Sweden, Canada, Mexico, all over the place. So pretty cool. Uh, Another thing that I wanted to touch on over the last two years, we have attempted to provide a method to our madness with regard to the staff and the leadership of the organization with regard to a, a structure for how we operate the organization. We have adopted a business methodology called EOS, which stands for Entrepreneurial Operating System. And it's not rocket science. A lot of the principles that are contained within EOS have been known in business for many, many years. But the way that that we've been able to learn about it and, and implement it has made our lives, I think, a little bit easier and has proven to be an effective way for us to conduct really the the day-to-day business of the organization so that we can work alongside the members to do more. What is EOS? Well, it, it consists of six areas of your business and looking at those six areas and how you're doing. So there's data, being able to track constant contact, being able to track web traffic to our websites, whether it's acb.org or acbmedia.org, sites like that. Obviously, financial data is incumbent, and we've been doing that for a very long time. But things like being able to track how successful our ad campaigns are. So we actually did ad campaigns through Verizon Media, which is now known as Yahoo, last year. Uh, Yahoo provided us some free advertising that we were actually able to, through our communications team, be able to track the success of the ads that we were making available to Yahoo and the Yahoo family of of websites. Data, to me, is critically important. It's not not everything, but it helps when you're in the decision-making phase of deciding what to do. Data can really help you understand if something is merely anecdotal, a feeling that you've got, or you just look at the numbers and say, okay, here's where we really are the people. So the people is the next part. The people that are working with you, for you, working with the membership, are they the right ones to have on the team? Do they get it? Do they want it? Do they have the capacity to do it? And we've been able to introduce over the last couple of years, roughly eight new members to our team, which is quite a lot. And looking at the people, and as part of that, through the lens of our core values, uh, that, that were adopted by the board of directors in 2019. Uh, we have five core values, and we look at those when we're out recruiting for new folks. And even beyond that, once people are working here, do they live up to those five core values? So first one is honesty and integrity. The second is respect. The third is collaboration. The fourth is flexibility. And the fifth is initiative. So each one of these has its own definition. Core values can be something that you choose to live by, or they can be something on a sheet of paper (laughs) that you check a box at the end of uh, strategic planning to say that you did. And I'm very, very passionate about these core values because they've helped us really be more focused on what matters, uh, what matters in a new teammate, what matters in the folks that are around us. And I think once we are able to have the right group of people, which I feel like we've, we're, we're creating a, a good culture inside the organization, we can do so much more. And 
without those things to point to, things get a little fuzzy. Uh, it's been it's been great for me, and I know that it's been really good for the the leadership, not just me, but folks on the board, as well as my teammates in the office. So next is the the process, being able to establish process, uh, which has been challenging historically. ACB has been very decentralized and intentionally so, and so a lot of what we've done there hasn't been a defined process and. Over the last, I would say, year specifically, we've been able to identify processes so that we understand where we are from beginning to middle to end, establishing milestones, putting together what EOS refers to as rocks, which are goals and objectives, and within those milestones along the way to be able to point to, to see, are, are we on track or are we off track? And if we're off track, why are we off track? And to go with that, the L10 meeting structure, which those of you that sit on ACB committees may be somewhat familiar with because over the last six to nine months, many of the committees have begun to roll out the L10 meeting format, which has been really helpful for my team, but I've observed it be very helpful in a very practical way to committees and how they conduct their business. It's a 90-minute structured meeting that has a flow, a clear flow to it, which, you know, at at times you can get into meetings and you have a wonderful conversation and then you leave and you realize, what did we agree to do? What do I have to do for the next meeting? And then you wind up in this sort of vicious circle of the next month, the next meeting, and you do it again. (laughs) And it gets frustrating. And for folks who are volunteer members, they're volunteering because they care because they want to do something, right, for the organization. And so implementing this structure where you start off with some personal and and professional sharing, you move into whatever data has been collected for that month, you then move into uh, the rock review where you look at your goals and objectives, if you're off track, on track, if you're off track, why. Headlines, what, what big things have happened since you last met. With us, we meet every week for 90 minutes uh, in the office. And then you get into to-dos. So from the last meeting, what were you supposed to have gotten done? If not, why not? And do you need to extend the to-do period for another week or month or however long until you have your next meeting? Then the very end, the last probably 40 minutes, 40 to 50 minutes of of the meeting is IDS, which is identify, discuss, and solve. And that's really where you bring your big issues. Issues that you're either frustrated by or just need outside ears to listen and to pitch in. So you identify the issue, you discuss it, and then at the end, hopefully you've solved it. Or if you haven't solved it, it becomes a to-do to hold a meeting to discuss specifics about that issue. And then you end the meeting, and the whole reason why it's called L10 L stands for level 10, which means one through 10. So 10 is the highest rating you can give a meeting. You and your colleagues rate the quality of the meeting, one through 10, and then you leave and you come back and you do it again. Uh, This process has been very helpful. At the start, it was somewhat painful because it's not what we were used to doing, but it has helped to drive better conversation, more rich conversation. At the end of the day, it's helped to drive action, to do more. And that has been eye-opening for many of us. And I've 
witnessed it firsthand with some of the ACB committees as they've begun to implement it as well. So big, big fan of process, vision, the vision of the organization. How are you, you know, working within the vision, your organization to live it out, to take down barriers that exist within society so that blind people can essentially have what they want, can do what they want, lofty goals, but you have a vision, you have all these other things and they all need to align uh, so that hopefully at some point you achieve traction. Traction is a big one. Traction is when you get all these things working and you're moving forward and you have traction. Now, EOS, this concept came from a book called Traction written by Gino Wickman and it's available on Bookshare and it's available on Audible. And uh, I would say skip the first three or four chapters because it's just a bunch of business gobbledygook. The real good stuff happens right around chapter four, chapter five. It's been hugely helpful for us as a team to learn and to implement, and then also to to share with our, our membership so that you know the steering committees and the committees can hopefully do more. I've even heard rumors that an affiliate or two are experimenting with the L10 meeting format, which I think is just fantastic. So big fan of EOS and how it's helped us. So a lot, lot has happened over the last year, but now we come into 2022 and we have the DC Leadership Conference coming up in a very short period of time here. So uh, March 12th through 15th, generally that is held in the DC suburbs and folks have a day on Capitol Hill to meet with their legislators to go over our legislative imperatives. Um, this year, it'll be virtual once again, as it was last year. We'll be holding the affiliate president's meeting on the afternoons of the 12th and 13th, and the legislative seminar on the afternoons of the 14th and 15th. So we'll get things started every day at 1230 Eastern. The agendas will be coming out here in the next 10 days or so. So be on the lookout for that. We've got some imperatives that deal honestly, with technology at the end of the day. At the core of all of them is, is technology. There's a piece of legislation dealing with medical device non-visual access uh, that really speaks to the lack of accessibility with regard to medical devices that have digital displays on them and the need for that to change. You know, we've had these discussions down through the years regarding durable medical equipment and the challenges that we have in really taking care of ourselves, managing our own health, understanding our numbers and what those numbers mean, right? With regard to uh, glucose, with regard to blood pressure, with regard to, frankly, about anything in the healthcare realm, very limited access. So that piece of legislation is something that obviously we would like to see moved. It's in the House. Uh, Congresswoman Schakowsky introduced it. The Exercise and Fitness for All Act, which has been introduced by Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois, S-2504. And really what this seeks to do is to call on gyms and health clubs to ensure that they're buying equipment that's access accessible, but also to have it include any instruction that's being done in the facility as well to ensure that that's accessible. So aerobics or yoga or what have you. And all of this, the nature of our health, 
our the, the challenges that we do have with our own health has only been heightened the last couple of years because of the the challenges in getting around during a pandemic. The the blind community is not a overly healthy community by and large. A lot of the reason why folks lose their vision is due to other reasons like diabetic retinopathy and and other illnesses that folks acquire as they age. And so being able to exercise, being able to understand one own one's own healthcare, taking back one's own health, understanding the numbers is just enormous. And then finally the the the, the last piece is an amendment or a bill that we're seeking to update piece of law called the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act. And really this is the Communications and Video Accessibility Act amendments. That this law was signed by President Obama in 2010. It has really helped in a lot of ways, uh, level of playing field with regard to entertainment, emergency alerts, uh, having emergency alerts become accessible to the blind community on television, audio description on the four major networks and the top five cable channels, having that be required, requiring that the user interfaces that we uh, need to access in order to activate those features, that they be accessible as well. So these are all good things, ensuring that smartphones are accessible and remain accessible. But the nature of technology moves on. It just always moves. And now we see internet protocol and online content being delivered all day, every day. And none of that is covered by the existing law or their accompanying regulations. And so what we're seeking to do is to refresh some of that to give the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, the authority to require that some of this stuff be made accessible. I think just as a quick aside, ACB has led the way in championing audio description and user interfaces uh, by being able to negotiate with some of the largest companies in the entertainment industry today, Netflix, HBO Max, Hulu, just to name a few, in order to have them audio describe their originals, begin to audio describe some of their library, but also, and equally as important, to make their user interfaces accessible too, so that we can activate that audio described content independently. A lot going on with that. None of that has been required by law. It's just stuff that we've done. With that, happy to take any questions. All right. Do we have any questions for Eric on the board? Eric, I have a question. Could you describe uh, what the upcoming convention is going to look like? Sure. So it's going to be a hybrid. So we'll be in person and we will have uh, the ability uh, for folks who can't come um, or for whatever reason aren't able to come to participate virtually as well. So, you know, the general sessions will be made available and uh, uh, virtually, and there'll be other content, obviously, made available virtually as well. Okay, Eric, you have some questions. Kevin Williams, you want to unmute, please? I just want to say I really appreciate some of the success that you all have done for for the blind. I utilize some of those, uh, like you said, some of those providers, Netflix especially, and um, 
having that audio description really, really helps out a whole lot when you're trying to find out what's going on. So I really appreciate everything that you all have done. I'm really uh, glad to hear that. Thanks. That's all I want to say. Well, right now, that's it. But every time you say that, somebody raises their hand. Well, I I think uh, due to time concerns, et cetera, Eric, it's been uh, it's been a great presentation. We appreciate uh, all the information you brought to us. Definitely be looking for some information coming up on the uh, the March uh, event for the going up to see Congress, and uh, certainly for uh, the ACB convention coming up this summer. So, yeah, thank you for joining us. And uh, we look forward to having you back again soon. Thank you so much. Have a good one. All right. So we've got one final presentation today. Uh, We have Social Security and Medicare uh, questions answered. Today we have Teresa Campbell with us, and uh, she's the SSA Public Affairs Specialist. And uh, she's got a number of things to learn about from uh, changes in Social Security and some other things as well. So... Uh, Teresa, are you with us? Yes, yes, I sure am. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us today. And uh, at this point, I'll turn the floor over to you and uh, we'll go from there. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much for inviting me to, to join you today. It's a great honor. So I've worked for Social Security for over 30 years. I've worked in both the technical and supervisory positions. And I want to say that I admire your work so much, your advocacy work and everything uh, that you are doing. So what I want to talk to you about today is, uh, you know, a little bit of an overview of Social Security, but also about how Social Security can assist you if you are working now or if you decide that you want to work. So Social Security has two disability programs, and it's easy to get the two confused because they seem like they're practically the same thing. One is called SSDI, or Social Security Disability Insurance, and the other one is called SSI, or Supplemental Security Income. Now, Social Security Disability Insurance, these are payments that come from the Social Security Trust Funds, and they are based on a person's earnings. So when you work, Social Security is withheld from your wages. 6.2% of your wages go to the Social Security system, and then your employer matches that. So if you are no longer able to work due to a disabling condition, then you can collect this Social Security disability insurance. So it doesn't matter what your income and resources are. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you just won the lottery. You could still qualify for these SSDI payments if you meet the disability criteria and you have worked in jobs where Social Security was withheld from your pay. There's also benefits for adults who became disabled prior to age 22. They can receive benefits on their mom or their dad's record. If mom or dad is receiving Social Security disability themselves, a Social Security retirement check, or have passed away. So let's say an individual, he passes away and his child is 40 years old. That child could qualify for Social Security survivor benefits if he or she became disabled prior to age 22. The other one is the SSI program. 
These are payments that come from the general treasury fund, not from the social security trust fund. Uh, that means they're not based on a person's earnings. So the SSI is a needs-based public assistance program and it does not require a work history. So it pays disabled individuals who are unable to work and have limited income and resources. Um, so since you don't have to have a work history to get SSI, that means that even a newborn baby could qualify for SSI benefits if the baby was born with a disabling condition and the parent has limited income and resources. So this is the definition of disability for both programs, both SSDI and SSI have the same disability. It would mean an individual has an inability to engage in substantial gainful activity because of a medically determinable impairment, which can be expected to result in death or which has lasted or can be expected to last for not less than 12 months. So the Social Security's definition of disability is very stringent. Now, when we say substantial gainful activity, we mean earnings. So SGA or substantial gainful activity is the performance of significant and productive physical or mental work for pay or profit. So the SGA limit or the substantial gainful activity limit changes every year. In this year, in 2022, it's 1350 a month. So that means if you're working and you're earning that much money, you are working substantially. Even if you have an impairment, you're working despite your impairment. Uh, but it's different for blind individuals. It's a higher amount. So the substantial gainful activity amount for a blind individual is 2260 So we would say if you were working and you were earning that amount, then you are working substantially. So to file for benefits, you can always call us. Our phone number is 800-SSA-1213 and set up an appointment and we will send you a starter kit and then we will call you for your appointment or you can file online at socialsecurity.gov. This is our website. And one thing that you can do on our website is you can apply for your Social Security Disability Benefits. When you apply for benefits, we're going to ask you the date and place of your birth, name and date of birth of your current spouse and any former spouses, name and date, date of birth of any children younger than 18 or 19 if still in high school, um, or any children who became disabled prior to age 22, and that's because we're looking to see if you could qualify on someone else's record or if somebody else could qualify on your record. So if you have a dependent who could qualify for benefits on your record. And then we will ask you your bank's routing number and account number and a contact person. So if we weren't able to, to reach you for some reason, is there another individual we could contact? Uh, for your medical condition, we will ask for detailed information about your medical illness, injury, or condition. So the names, address, phone number, patient ID number, and dates of treatment. The names of any medicines you are taking and who prescribed them. And the name and date of any medical test you have had and who ordered them. Uh, work activity. So we also ask you about your employer or self-employment details for the current year and the past two years. 
the date your medical condition began to affect your ability to work, the types of jobs you had in 15 years before you became unable to work, the types of duties you did at the longest job, and any special job training, trade school, or vocational school, the date completed, and the highest grade in school completed. So you can see we're asking a lot of questions. Um, so right on our website, you can apply for your disability, you know, if you need to return to it. So maybe you need to look something up. Maybe, you know, you've been working on it for a long time and you need to get back to it the next day. You can always save your application and return to your saved application. So it will give you a, a code so that you can get back into your saved application, complete it and submit it. So in your application, you're really trying to paint a picture for the analyst. So for SSDI, for our Social Security Disability Insurance, when you submit an application, we're looking to see if you are insured. That means have you worked in employment where you have, where Social Security was withheld from your pay? Your wages, because that determines how much your payment will be. And we look at relationships. So we look to see, do you have dependents? Do you have children who could qualify for benefits on your record? Or maybe your spouse could qualify for benefits on your record if your spouse is taking care of your children. Or maybe you could qualify for benefits on one of your parents' records. So we do an evaluation to see, is there any other record that this individual could qualify under? or can anybody else qualify for benefits on this record? For SSI, for our supplemental security income, we ask lots of questions about living arrangements. So we wanna know, you know, who's living with you, how much is the mortgage or, or rental and the rest of the expenses, household expenses, because when we determine an SSI payment, we take living arrangements into consideration. So. Some individuals are due a higher SSI payment, for instance, if they are living independently or living with others and paying their fair share towards the household expenses. Uh, we also look at an individual's resources. So for SSI purposes, you would need to have limited resources. So countable resources, less than $2,000 or $3,000 for a couple. There's a lot of exclusions. So we exclude the house you live in and your vehicle of any value, for instance. And then we ask you about your other income to make sure that you meet the income level as well. Okay, and for health insurance, every single month that you are doing SSI payment, you are automatically entitled to Medicaid. So you don't need to go to the Department of Public Social Services and file an application for Medicaid. You get it automatically every month that you're doing SSI payment. Social Security Disability links you to Medicare. So after receiving Social Security Disability for 24 months, you then become entitled to Medicare. Some people get both. So some people get both Medicaid and Medicare. That's a great thing if you qualify for both. Uh, one of the benefits of qualifying for both is that Medicare does have a premium for the Part B, but if you have Medicaid, the state will pay your Part B premium for you. Okay, so one thing that is very important to Social Security is our work incentives. So we want to encourage individuals who want to try to work or maybe want to return to work 
to do that. So we don't want you to um, think, I can't do this. Social Security is going to stop my payments. And, you know, what am I going to do then? I, I need that safety net. So we do have these work incentives. So under the Social Security Disability, and I will say the, there's some overlap with the work incentives, um, but there's also some things that are specific to each program. So this is something that's specific just to Social Security Disability, and that is that there is a trial work period. So you have nine months where uh, you can work and there is no earnings limit. Your Social Security Disability will continue. As long as you make more than 970 for those months, it will count as a trial work period month. If you make less than 970, it will not count at all. So it needs to be uh, gross wages of more than 970 a month. And this is in a rolling five-year period. So it's in a rolling 60-month period. So the, the months don't need to be consecutive. Okay, once you have successfully completed your trial work period, you move into your extended period of eligibility, and that lasts for 36 months. So during the extended period of eligibility, every month that you make more than the SGA, the substantial gainful amount, is a month that you are not due a Social Security payment. So that means if you are a blind individual, if you have earnings of more than 2260 for the month, then you would not be due a Social Security payment that month. If you have wages below that, you will still be due your Social Security payment. After those 36 months have ended, when you work SGA the month after that, after that extended period of eligibility, your benefits would terminate. However, there is expedited reinstatement. So if you become disabled again or have the same condition, or well, I should say you're, you have the same condition, but um, you're no longer able to work, then we can expedite your claim back on for your Social Security benefits. And we can pay you provisional payments for up to six months while we're working on expediting uh, the decision. Some more work incentives, and this one is under the SSDI and the SSI program, is impairment-related work expenses, and we're going to talk more about that, an unsuccessful work attempt, subsidies, and our Ticket to Work program. Now, individuals who are working, and maybe the Social Security has ended because the job is uh, substantial, it's providing substantial wages. Medicare coverage can continue seven and a half years, so 93 months after the work has started. So impairment-related work expense means that we can deduct the cost of certain impairment-related items or services from gross earnings. It would need to be an item or service that enables you to work. It's needed because of an impairment. The item or service is not reimbursed by another source, and the cost is reasonable. So here in our example, we have Jenny. So Jenny has a disabling condition, um, and she is earning $1,400 a month. So what we would say, because um, Jenny doesn't, is not a blind individual, she is a disabled individual. So $1,400 is over the substantial limit for a disabled individual. 
So just looking at it, you know, superficially, we would say, oh, well, I'm sorry, Jenny, um, even though you have a disabling condition, you're making substantial money, so you would not qualify for this benefit. But we're going to question Jenny further. And we find out that Jenny has a service animal, and she has to spend $50 a month on the vet bills and the food for her animal. She also has prescription co-pays, and she pays $40 a month. She also has an attendant who helps her get ready for work and drives her to work, and she is paying the attendant $250 a month to help her. That means that Jenny's countable earnings are $1,060 a month. She is below the substantial limit, and so that means that Jenny's benefits, we would say when she's filing an initial claim, or if she's in her extended period of eligibility, we would say these are months that you were entitled to your Social Security disability benefits. Your earnings are not substantial once we deduct your, your impairment-related expenses. An unsuccessful work attempt would mean that work stopped or was reduced below the substantial level after six months because of an individual's impairment or removal of a special condition. So an unsuccessful work attempt would not be considered during that nine-month trial work period. But an unsuccessful work attempt can occur during the extended period of eligibility. So maybe during three to six months, somebody was making substantial wages. However, the work ended due to the individual's impairment then we're not going to count that because it was unsuccessful. And then um, subsidy. So an example of a subsidy would be Mary, and Mary's parents own a tire store, and Mary works there. So her job is she makes coffee for the guests, um, she sweeps, and she greets the customers, and Mary is paid 1500 a month. So that means that Mary it has enough money to live in her own apartment and buy her own food. And so if Mary were to come to Social Security and say, I have a disabling condition, and we would question her and she'd say, well, I'm making 1500 a month. And so we might think, okay, Mary, you're, you're making substantial money. But then when Mary says, well, I work for my dad and mom, then that, that would make us think, okay, the subsidy could be involved here. So we questioned Mary's father, Joe, about the value of Mary's work. And so Joe tells us that the value of Mary's work is 50% of her pay. So because uh, he wants to help his daughter, he's subsidizing her. So that means that her countable earnings are 750. Her earnings are below the substantial gainful level. Her earnings are even below the trial work period level, so it wouldn't count as a trial work period month either. Okay, and Ticket to Work is an innovative program that provides employment service for individuals who receive SSDI or SSI benefits. So it's private organizations or government agencies. They can help you go to work get a good job, and really lead to a long-term career. So it can help to improve an individual's earnings potential and help prepare for long-term success. So if you're interested in Ticket to Work, what they do is they send you a list 
of employment networks. You would choose an employment network to work with and they would make sure that you get the training you need and match you with an employer. When you're successful at your job, then the employment network is reimbursed. And so they want to make sure that they're pairing you with a great employer and that you have a high likelihood for success. So the phone number for Ticket to Work is 1-866-YOUR-TICKET. And so under the SSI program, the work incentives are different. First, there is an earned income exclusion. So we deduct the first $65 from an individual's gross income and then one half of the remainder. So we don't, once you're getting an SSI payment, we don't say, oh, you're working substantially, you're in your extended period of eligibility, you're not due your payment, or, or you've been working substantially, you know, during the whole, you know, extended period of eligibility, so now benefits are going to stop. For SSI, you know, it would continue on. We would just lower the SSI payment amount because you have other income. There's also a student earned income exclusion. So these are for students under age uh, 22, where we exclude $2,040 a month up to a yearly maximum of $8,230. A plan for achieving self-support. Property necessary for self-support does not count towards the resource limit. And impairment-related work expenses. So the same impairment-related work expenses that we talked about in SSDI, it works the same way for SSI, where we deduct that amount from the gross wages. Additional work incentives is that if somebody is working and their wages are so high that they're not due any payment at all from SSI, we will keep their record active so that they can keep their Medicaid. And it, even if benefits are all the way down to zero for a long time, we will not terminate the record. So that means if work ends, your benefits would start right up again. And then Ticket to Work also applies for individuals who receive SSI. So here's an example of earned income. So we have Oscar and he's receiving an SSI payment of $841 a month and he gets a job, he's earning $500 a month. So he has his $500 in wages. We exclude the $20 general income exclusion because he has no other income. The $65 earned income exclusion it goes to 415, we divide it in half, $207.50 is his countable income. So Oscar used to receive an SSI payment of 841, but now that he has this job and other income, we're going to deduct his countable income of 207.50. That means that Oscar's new SSI payment is 630.50. So now Oscar has his wages of $500 a month, his SSI payment of $633.50 a month. That means that Oscar's new monthly income amount is $1,133.50. So his monthly income has increased by $292.50 a month. So even though his SSI went down, overall there's more income. Okay. Our plan for achieving self-support that would be where an individual sets aside income and resources to use for a work goal. So examples would be educational expenses, vocational training, assistive technology, expenses for starting a business. An individual would submit the form SSA 545 listing a specific work goal and a specific time frame. 
So we have Anne, and Anne wants to go to school to become an RN, and she receives Social Security disability of $1,200 a month. So her income is too high to get an SSI check because the max you can get on it in SSI is $841. So her SSDI would put her over the income limit. However, Anne says, well, you know, I, I need this money so that I can pursue my work goal. She needs $1,180 a month for tuition, books, and supplies. So we can exclude this amount under the approved plan to achieve self-support. So we can make Anne eligible for SSI of 841 a month. She can use that for her living expenses, and then she can use her past funds of 1080 a month for her approved plan expenses. Okay, so the Randolph-Shepard Act, this is something that uh, we hardly ever see. In, in my long, long career at Social Security, um, I have only seen uh, one case that fell under the Randolph-Shepard Act, but it's something that could apply to you. And so, you know, if you talk to Social Security and you know you fall under this, make sure that you tell them, you know, the Randolph-Shepard Act. And so they might need to look it up, but this is something that could be a great benefit. And so I want to make sure that you understand it so that, you know, you can make sure that you tell us so that it's not something that we miss because we want to make sure that you get credit for everything that you could qualify for. So Congress enacted the Randolph-Shepard Act uh, to enhance employment opportunity for trained and licensed blind individuals to operate facilities on federal property. The blind vendor may also receive income from vending machines that are located on the same property, even though the blind vendor does not service, operate, or maintain the vending machines. So the law ensures that individuals who are blind are a priority in the operation of vending facilities. This includes cafeterias, snack bars, and automatic vending machines. The law has been broadened in most states and now includes county, municipal, and private locations. Now, there's something called incurred business expenses. So in the course of doing business, a self-employed person ordinarily incurs or becomes liable for normal business expenses. These incurred expenses, whether paid by the self-employed individual or someone else, are deducted from the individual's gross income to determine the net income. I've never been self-employed myself. I know it's hard. I know I know self-employed people, you know, work the hardest of probably anyone. But the, and there's also a lot of expenses. I have seen a lot of, of tax returns and I know that individuals who are self-employed, oftentimes their expenses are more than, than 50%. So that means that those expenses are deducted from an individual's gross earnings. Okay, so the unincurred business expenses, it refers to self-employment business support that someone provides to you at no cost. We deduct unincurred business expenses from your net earnings from self-employment. Examples of unincurred business expenses are sponsoring agency pays rent, purchases stock, and purchases or repairs equipment. A friend works for your business's unpaid help. 
would be another example for an item or service to qualify as an unincurred business expense. It must be an item or service that the IRS would allow as a legitimate business expense if you had paid for it and someone other than you must have paid for it. So that means that let's say that you're getting $50,000 worth of rent that you don't have to pay for to operate your business. You can't write it off on your tax return, right? Because you didn't pay for it. However, under social security rules, we will deduct that from your net earnings from self-employment. So even though you didn't pay the rent, that also, um, if it's somebody who is helping you and not drawing a salary, we will also take what the value of that person's salary would have been and deduct that from your self-employment earnings. Right? So that, all of those things, means that your countable wages, your countable wages might be, when we look at your net earnings from self-employment and uh, divide it by 12, it might put you over the SGA level. But once we look at these unincurred business expenses and deduct those, it could put you under. And this is, a, you know, under the Social Security Disability Program, we do not count the income that the blind self-employed vendor receives under the, the randolph Shepard Act from vending machines located on the same property, but not serviced, operated, or maintained by the blind vendor as self-employment income for substantial gainful activity purposes. So when the Social Security Disability is determining countable income, we deduct the individual's net income from the individual's net income, any business expenses which were incurred and paid by another person or agency. We also deduct the value of things provided the individual provided to the individual, even though no actual expense was incurred and paid by anyone for the things that were provided. So here we have an example. We have someone whose self-employment net income was twenty-eight thousand for the year. Now that's over the um, substantial level for a blind individual. However, this person is not paying for his rent or for his equipment, and that value is 18000 for the year. So that's an unincurred business expense. That means that this individual's countable income for the year for SSDI purposes is 10000 That's under the blind, substantial gainful activity, and this person's benefits would continue. Now, for SSI purposes, we do not deduct unincurred business expenses from earnings when we determine your SSI payment amount. So that it's only for the SSDI program, not for the SSI. Okay, so I hope that all of you have a chance to visit our website and to create a My Social Security account so that you can manage benefits from the comfort of your own home. So if you have a smartphone or a computer or a tablet, you should be able to create a My Social Security account. We have lots of calculators and financial planning tools, you know, so that you can have a secure financial future. If you receive benefits or Medicare and you create a My Social Security account, you can now request a replacement card online as long as you're at least age 18, a U.S. citizen, and you have a driver's license or a state ID. You can report your wages if you work and receive disability insurance benefits. You can get a benefit verification letter as proof that you are getting benefits. You can check your benefit and payment information in your earnings record. You can change your address and phone number. 
You can start or change direct deposit of your benefit payment. You can request a replacement Medicare card and get a replacement 1099 for taxes. If you do not receive benefits, you can create a My Social Security account and request a replacement Social Security card if you meet the same requirements. You can check the status of your application. You can get a benefit verification letter as proof that you are not getting benefits. You can get your Social Security statement to review, giving you estimates of future retirement, disability, or survivor benefits. You can verify your earnings once a year to make sure that the amounts that are posted are correct. And it will tell you the estimated Social Security and Medicare taxes that you've paid. So to open a My Social Security account, you would visit socialsecurity.gov slash my account and then sign in or create your account. And then you would provide some personal information to verify your identity. So we ask you some out-of-the-wallet questions. So we get the questions from Experian. If you have frozen your credit report, then you would need to unfreeze your credit report. You can create a My Social Security account, and then you can refreeze your credit report. Then you choose a username and password, and then every single time you log in, we will either text or email you a security code. So that's an extra layer of security. Okay, so if you're not receiving benefits, Yet, you can always apply online. You can call us at 1-800-SSA-1213 and set up an appointment. Uh, right now, the offices are closed except for the most dire need appointments. So right now, the appointments would need to be done by phone. Now, the best way to apply is usually online. If, However, you're applying for survivor benefits. So um, if you're applying for benefits on a parent's record, because you have a condition that occurred prior to age 22, you would not be able to file that application online because those applications get kind of complicated. So we want to interview you to take that application. Okay, well, thank you for your attention and thank you again for inviting me. And I hope you have a safe, happy and secure tomorrow. Are there any questions? Yes, there are. Anthony, you want to unmute, please? Okay. Hi. I have a question. Uh, how does Social Security view the following dividends, interest payments that we that uh, we receive, and uh, capital gains, say from trading? I've been having a little bit of luck there, and um, uh, how, how would that affect uh, the benefits? Oh, congratulations! It does not affect SSDI or Social Security Disability one bit. Now, if you get SSI, it, it would affect your SSI payment but it uh, does not affect a, a social security disability payment. Well, uh, so there's no limit to income from those uh, sources then? There is not. That's what we call unearned income, um, and there's no limit. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. Kathy wrote. I have a question about unincurred um, business expenses. I was reading that literature and it, it kind of looks like it's talking to the individual, but it doesn't say who is responsible for writing the unincurred business letters to the Social Security Administration. Who deems how much square footage, how much per hour, um, which kinds of things count, and then who writes that letter back when that is requested. Yeah, I um, on the case that I worked on, and it was somebody had asked me to assist with it, it was a person because it was a case that we had made a mistake on because we hadn't given her credit for the unincurred business expenses, and she had an advocate who was helping her. It was, um, I want to say it was a vocational 
rehabilitation, someone who worked for the state that had written the letter for her. So you don't know if there's any particular person that's supposed to do it, but typically it would be an advocate and possibly in the VR realm. Uh, right. Kathy, mm-hmm. this is art, artists um, from experience from working with um, vendors. Um, a lot of times the only way the vendor can get the square footage and the amount that building square footage is worth is by contacting the BEP uh, rep. And then they can give them that information because most vendors wouldn't know how to access that information. Right. And, and my, my question comes, I should tell you straight up. Um, in the past, it looks like our state SLA has always written the letter and calculated the hourly amount and the different categories and the square footage. And I wonder if we're... Um, either overstepping our bounds or doing more than we should or ought to, because I I started to write a letter and someone said, well, what makes you have to do that? Why are you doing that? Where does it say that you're doing that? So that's why. I know when I was in in Iowa, that's the way it was done, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm wondering, you know, is that something that the person themselves, as a, a responsible business person, would typically do, with the exception of getting stuff they don't know about, like square footage from the department? Or is that something that the department is supposed to help them with or at some other source? Well, in the cases that I know about, that they just gave the information to the individual. And then if the um, Social Security wanted verification, then, you know, the agency would verify that that was correct information. So the individual... So we gives- might contact, like, a real estate agent. Uh, generally, but we, do, we try to contact a knowledgeable source. We might do that to verify the information. But if it seems reasonable to us, we would we would generally accept the information that was provided. So generally, the individual would fill out that letter and all that information, and they would just get from the state what they need from the state that they can't get themselves. Yes, and I, I'm not because I don't have a ton of experience with this since it's there's so few cases, but we would ask the individual to provide the information. We might reach out to a knowledgeable source in the community. Thank you. Area code 901 ending in 710. You may unmute. I have a, a daughter. Me and my husband both are vision impaired and we received the SDI. SSDI. Okay. And my daughter is uh, 18 and she's receiving a check off of one of the parents. And uh, she's fixing to start college, and I didn't know. Uh, and also, you know, she'll be paying tuition and all that stuff. Can you tell me what will happen with her check, or how does that work? You said that you have a daughter who's receiving a social security benefit check based on the parent's earnings record, so an auxiliary payment or maybe a survivor payment, and she's turning age 18 and going to college. Does she have a disabling condition? Yes. Yes. Okay, so before the benefits stop, they're going to ask you to uh, complete a disability application for her. So they're going to ask you if she has a disabling condition. Uh, Then they're going to, when you say yes, they're going to set up a disability application. Uh, And once she is found to be disabled, then those um, benefits from a parent can continue. Okay, now how will that, when she receives his payment, how will that affect her money if she has to pay tuition and living expenses all that? Well, she, once she turns 18, uh, she'd probably be her own payee. She would use that check 
for her living expenses, she should also, I would encourage her to apply for any grants or scholarships that she could get uh, with the college. Well, she lose, I mean, she just use that money. She wouldn't get it. She wouldn't have any money. She just have to use that check. Okay. Right, right. She, right she'd use you. that money for her living expenses. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay, you have one more. Kevin Williams, you want to unmute? I was uh, curious about the um, unincurred expenses. Would you by any chance know when you're filling out your 1040 on what line would that figure would go on? So that's worth your taxes when you yes, your, yes, um, your taxes. When you have to file your taxes and you have to provide that, that amount, where will you put that amount on your 1040? So the thing about the unincurred business expenses is since you're not actually paying for it, so it's an expense that you would pay for, but you don't because it's being provided uh, without a charge. So IRS is not going to accept that as something that you can write off, but Social Security is going to deduct those from your net earnings from self-employment. Okay. One other thing, um, I think her name was Kathy. Well, here in Tennessee, the SLA provide all that information about your facility, how many machines, uh, the fixtures, uh, square footage and everything. They have that information. They're provided to the manager that requests that information. Uh, they have all of that information. So all the manager will have to do is just request it from the consultant or the uh, uh, administration. They will provide that. Thank you. Yes, thank you. That seems to be it for the questions. Okay, well, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Teresa. This, this has once again been a very informative uh, amount of information. We always appreciate it when we get to hear from you and to ask questions. Thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, thank you for... Uh, answering all those questions that we have. Hey, no, that was great. And would you like some door prizes? We've got to do some door prizes before we're done here today. Absolutely. Okay. I have James Parkman from Florida. I have Joni Patch from California. And I have Michaela Crump from Tennessee. All right. Well, congratulations, everyone. Fantastic. Well, at this point, I think we've covered all of our bases. This is what we have for you for Sagebrush 2022. Uh, we appreciate you being with us this week. And a uh, couple of things to keep in your mind for 2023. We hope to be back in Las Vegas. And last year, I was so positive about us being there this year. Well, here we are again. <laughs> but we're ho hopeful for something better to happen for us to 2023. If you attend, uh, a couple of things. I've got a special announcement as we get closer to the date next year about our auction. We've got some special things in mind that could happen for our auction. So keep that in mind. Also, we'll be getting together with the USBGA. Uh, those folks were so excited to bring you an opportunity to try playing golf, and it just didn't work out for us this year. So next year, they will be back. They will be ready to show off uh, what we can do on the golf course, and it'll be a, a, a unique experience and uh, something you may never forget. It, it's quite fun. Uh, with that, we thank you. Thank you for being an RSVA member, and we look forward to seeing you in 2023.